Warning, today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Welcome to episode four of The East Meets the West. I'm your host, Rigor, and I'm joined once again by Patsy the Angry Nerd. How's it going, Pat? Uh, pretty well. Pretty well. You know, uh, get to talk about a couple more movies this week, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to discuss this one, because I think this was a, uh, a good, good time. Yes, yes, same here. Um, and it's kind of funny, because... Well, with the Shaw Brothers, I I kind of specifically picked one, but with the with the spaghetti westerns, since I don't really know a lot of them, I just know a handful of them, I just picked one at random, and I think we kind of lucked out with um, with both films today. Yeah. So as we continue our journey exploring the Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti westerns, we're watching a lot of really good movies, like we just said, and of course today's double feature is no exception. As always, we'll begin with a Shaw Brothers film. In this case, The Kid with the Golden Arm from 1979, once again directed by Chang Che. And once again, all five Venom actors are reunited in this film. Now, for first-time listeners, the movie Five Deadly Venoms, or just Five Venoms, from 1978 was directed by Chang Che and starred six actors, most of which would work together in several succeeding films, and many of which Che also directed. The actors became known in real life as the Venom Mob, or the Five Weapons Guys. All told, there are about 19 Venom films, quote-unquote, and the criteria is that they are they're either directed by Chang Che or one of the Venoms, or at least three of the Venom mobs star in the film. So far, in our first three episodes, we covered the first three quote-unquote Venom films, The Five Deadly Venoms, Invincible Shaolin, and Crippled Avengers. Now, we're going to skip over four films for today's pick because two of them have Shaolin in the title, and I didn't want listeners to get confused. And also, this ended up being the last picture that the real five Venom actors, Sun Chen, Lo Meng, Kuo Chui, Lu Feng, and Wei Bai would star in together because of Wei Bai's health. Also, this was the last film that Chang Che directed starring the Five Weapons Guys actors, Sun, Lo, Kuo, Lu, and Chang Sheng. Sadly, Wei Bai, who played the swordsman Li Chen Ming in today's film, suffered physical and mental stress from Tourette Syndrome, which is why in this film they gave him a sword. Because Tourette's is a sensory integration disorder, the mere touch of, say, a stuntman would cause a tick, so Bay used a sword instead. Knowing this, you could kind of see in his face that he had lost confidence in his abilities, And although they used um, really good camera work and camera shots to hide this. Wei Bai had shot John Woo's last film, Last Hurrah for Chivalry, simultaneously with this film, and then afterwards his last acting job was a cameo in 1988's Devil and the Ghostbuster. So good job, Rigor, for starting the show on a bummer. 
Zark Act have a plan. They intend to hijack the gold. Swordsman Li Ching Ning and his girl have offered us help to escort the boat. The Chisa gang is quite ruthless. Be real careful. The Chisa have four chiefs. Golden Ark. Silver Spear. Iron Rope. The government asks Yang Huyun to escort a cargo of gold to a famine-stricken area. The vicious Chi Sa gang announces their intention to hijack it by killing one of Yang's employees. Yang describes to his men the Chi Sa's four chiefs, each of whom has mastered a style of fighting. Golden arm, silver spear, iron robe, and the brass head. To protect the gold, Yang hires swordsman Li Chen Ming, Ming's girlfriend-slash-fiancé Miss Lang Feng, Long Axe, Yang Ju, Short Axe, Fang Shi, and Drunken Master, Agent, or Sheriff, Hai Tao. While scouting ahead, Long and Short Axe encounter the Seven Hooks gang and proceed to fight and kill three gangers each. Being competitive fighters, neither wants to kill more than the other, so they kill the last gang member together. Before meeting with Yang, Lang encounters Iron Robe. Hai Tao appears and defeats her attacker, though he disappears once again before she can thank him. When Lang meets with Ming at a winery, the employees, which are Silver Spear, Brass Head, and several Chi Sa gang members in disguise, attack them. Ming is poisoned by Sand Palm, played by Dick Wei, before they flee. Despite the commotion, Hai Tao enters and demands service. After defeating several gang members, he identifies the disguised owner and manager as Silver Spear and Brass Head. After they pull off their disguises, they invite Hai Tao to join their gang. When he refuses, they allow him to leave peacefully, still hoping to recruit him. Ming continues on his own after arguing with Lang over whether he should see a doctor. He's interested only in completing the mission. Meanwhile, Yang and his men battle Brasshead, who bursts from a secret tunnel in the floor. After mortally wounding him, they are in turn defeated by Goldenarm, whose unarmed style makes him invulnerable to their attacks. Goldenarm promises Brasshead vengeance before leaving to catch up with his gang members that have stolen the gold. Hai Tao stops the wagon by popping off a wheel, kills Iron Robe, and hides. Impressed with Hai Tao's skill, Goldenarm becomes determined to fight him. Goldenarm leaves the wagon for Yang to fix, confident that he can retake it later. Silver Spear easily defeats a weakened Ming, but Hai Tao rescues him. As Silver Spear retreats, Hai Tao takes Ming to a crematory. As Lang protests, the heat revives and cures Ming, though he's ungrateful and annoyed to owe his life to Hai Tao. As Yang and his men retrieve and fix the wagon, several men are poisoned from traps and die. All converge in a town where they agree to rest for the night. After several more people die from poison traps, and Hai Tao saves the survivors from another trap, they realize the entire town is a big trap. Ming becomes angry when Hai Tao and Lang become flirtatious. Two of Yang's men die as they attempt to steal the gold, making Hai Tao suspicious, as he reasons the Chisa gang could not foresee this. In the morning, he leaves for another town where he confronts Silver Spear, who's confused when Hai Tao questions him about poisoning the gold. Silver Spear leaves him with an ultimatum, join the gang or duel Goldenarm. Hai Tao chooses to duel. 
On the road, Yang's remaining escort become afraid and ask to leave, which he grants. Short Axe and Long Axe scout ahead where they discover several Chisai gang members and Silver Spear. Silver Spear kills Long Axe from a distance with Silver Darts, which angers Short Axe, spurring him to kill most of the gang members. While Silver Spear is fighting Short Axe, a gang member sneaks up behind him and impales Short Axe on a spear. In turn, Short Axe uses his weapons to kill the attacker. As Silver Spear is about to inflict an impaling blow on Short Axe, Short Axe impales Silver Spear before he dies. Before either can inflict another blow to each other, they each drop dead. Upon finding the tombs of Long Axe and Short Axe, Ming storms off impatiently to challenge Goldenarm, who defeats and kills him. Hightao duels with Goldenarm, reasoning that his eyes are unprotected. Hightao blinds him by spitting wine. Yang demands they kill Goldenarm, but when Hightao refuses, a man bursts from the gold cart, slashes Hightao, and reveals himself as Iron Feet. Iron Feet explains that he partnered with Yang to counteract Goldenarm's Chisa gang and claim the gold for themselves. However, he kills Yang. As the now-blinded Goldenarm and Iron Feet duel, Hightao reveals that he was only pretending to be wounded. Iron Feet only slashed his wine canteen. Together, Goldenarms and Hightao kill Iron Feet. Goldenarm intends to retire, but is mortally wounded by Lang Fang. Instead of killing her, he accepts his death as a better alternative, and Hightao leaves Lang to escort the gold as he gets drunk. So, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, your initial thoughts on this movie? I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, I really liked uh, uh, Philip Kwok as Hightao. Like some of the acrobatics and, and things that he did were really exceptional. Um, at the beginning, I was like, "Oh, I'm not totally sold on this fight choreography," but as it went along, it got better and better, and you know the uh, when when the main characters were facing off each, against each other and not just you know the uh, you know the the faceless armies you know the disposable army guys you don't uh, even have a name tag you know you <laughs> yeah <laughs> um that's when i really uh i was really invested in it you know obviously it's it's still weird to me and we'll get into this with uh, the next movie as well but it's still weird to me hearing such strange voices coming out of, you know, uh, like you look at a guy and it's like, oh, that's not how he's going to sound. Right. And it's like he's got this weird <laughs> voice. Yeah. It's, that's funny. I, re- I really liked it. I liked the characters a lot in this. It was just, this was such, it was just so much fun. Like long acts and short acts were probably my favorite. Like it, I would watch a whole like buddy cop movie of those guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're so good. I really, I really like um, uh, Short X was uh, Chang Shang. I'm really starting to think he's my favorite of the the Venom mob, and I loved his outfit in this movie. He had, he was similar to uh, Invincible Shaolin, but he's got this like I don't know, I can't describe it. It's just a cool black outfit with like you know, not lace on it, but like shoelace kind of tie in the front, and mm-hmm. it just looked really cool. Yeah, it looked uh, it definitely looked very comfortable. I have to say that. Uh... Um, Iron Robe's death. Oof. Oh, not the not the way I'd want to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, that was cringeworthy. There was a lot of cringy stuff in this movie, and there was you know sitting on the spikes and all that. And mm-hmm. um, first, I, I wanted to kind of go over the cast and crew here. Well, I've, I've I've never seen this one before either, and so this was my kind of first foray into this movie, and. I I also enjoyed it thoroughly. I just I loved the pacing. I loved the directing. And did you notice there was no training montage in this movie? Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody was already 
you know, you know, super, super talented and, and skilled. Right. So there was really no need for it. You know, um, oh, go ahead. I was going to say it's, uh, you know, I loved the, uh, the drunken style, uh, that, uh, that, uh, high toe. High Tau did. Yeah. Oh, so good. So, like, so much fun. Like, I'm, I'm watching it, and it was almost like watching a Harlem Globetrotters routine sometimes, right. where he would, like, swing the uh, swing the the, the, uh, the wine jug around. <laughs> yeah. There's so many wine jugs got trashed in this movie, I was appalled. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, my God. It's a terrible waste of wine. I know, kidding. <laughs> so the film was, of course, directed by Chang Che, and he also co-wrote it with a guy named Ni Kuang, which every time I read that name, I just think of Ni Kuang from Monty Python's Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, this was interesting when I did the little research. Ni Kuang, he wrote over 300 screenplays, and he's considered one of the four great talents of Hong Kong. He had an interesting life, and we should kind of dive into that maybe in a future episode. Because he was originally he was in the Chinese Liberation Army in 1951, and his job was basically to write death sentences. But when he started to see that people were being put to death for put to death for stupid things like being a landowner, he escaped to Hong Kong, traveling through Macau after a three month flight during which he survived by eating mice, ants, and cotton. Yeah. So it's understandable that he remained violently anti communist his whole the whole rest of his life. He in Hong Kong he became Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> in Hong Kong he became a construction worker by day and went to the university at night and there was one day where he's just like reading the newspaper and he realized that he could write articles just as good as the writers in the paper. So he started writing and soon he was getting published in various newspapers. And then a year later he published a novel based on the atrocities that he witnessed, but he didn't really become popular until he started writing writing science fiction novels and Wuxia screenplays. Now Wuxia literally means martial heroes, and it's the genre that we're studying. It's a genre of Chinese fiction concerning the adventures of martial artists in ancient China. Basically, most of the Shaw Brothers films are Wuxia, and those are the ones that we'll be covering on this show. So there's this whole world of interesting things here that we're going to explore in depth as we go along. I really enjoyed not only watching the film, I watched it twice, um, but doing the research. And what was kind of funny, you had mentioned earlier something that made me think of this. My my grandson, he's three, or he's four, actually. He came into the room towards the end of my second viewing of uh, the, the Kid with the Golden Arm. And he was like, his jaw hit the floor. He loved it. He was just enjoying it immensely. And he wanted to watch it again. And I had already seen it you know, for my second time. I was like, no, no, let's, let's watch something else. So I put on Invincible Shaolin. And he was really enjoying that, too. And I've noticed with the subtitles... Because I watched them with the subtitles. I don't know if you did, Pat. But halfway through the film, the subtitles go out of sync. So it's kind of annoying. But I did notice in this film, as with the last one, that the um, the character names were kind of the same from what they said and what was written on the on the screen. So that was good. It was less confusing. I thought overall the plot was was simple, not so confusing. And it was very much uh, in the style of a, of a Western plot, you know, protect the gold. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It definitely had that Western feel to it. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to let the cast stand on their own in this movie, and I'm not going to go through which characters they played in other films, but I will include that in the show notes for those who are playing along at home. So we've got Sun Chen, who played Yang Hu, Yang Hu Yun, or and Iron Feet. 
He um, sunned twice as many fights in this film than he had in the previous four Venom mob films, partly because of his lesser skill set. Um, although most of the Venoms were fight instructors and choreographers, Sun and Lo Mang never were a fight choreographers for the films. Uh, of course, Lo Mang played Golden Arms. I've seen it as Golden Arm and Golden Arms, so and especially the title of the film, so I don't know which is the the proper one. But he, of course, is the undisputed leader and founder of the Chisa Gang, and he's the youngest member, so I think that's why the movie's titled The Kid with the Golden Arms, even though he's not a kid. Mm-hmm. I think because he's the youngest one. Ko Chui, uh, known to our listeners as Philip Kwok, or as I like to say, Jared Padalecki's Asian cousin, plays Hightao, and you mentioned him earlier. He's a government agent who fights best when he's drunken. He easily was the, um, you know, the standout character in this movie, I thought. Oh, yeah. He was funny. He was, like, exciting. He, you know, everything he did was just, whenever he was on screen, like, he he uh, forced your focus onto him. Like, I think he was easily the best character in this. Yeah, yeah. And it was cool because he had this confidence about himself that he, he wasn't, um, he didn't look down on other people, but you could just tell that he knew exactly what he was doing and how to manipulate things to his advantage. Yeah. So we have Lu Feng who played Silver Spear, and he's got this cool spear that can extend itself when he needs it, and he also carries around throwing darts. They're like little daggers. I thought those those were cool. Chang Shang was Short Axe, which we mentioned earlier. Chu Pei Sun played Long Axe, Fang Shi. And um, Wei Pai, or Wei Bai, as it's written in different places, he played Li Chin Ming, the swordsman. Uh, Helen Poon, who was also uh, known as Pan Bing Chang, she played Miss Lang Feng. Or I've seen it written as heroin link. And basically, this was interesting because she was the first female combatant in a Five Weapons Guy film. So that was cool. Hmm. And then Wang Lung Wei played Iron Robe. Um, they said Robe, but the subtitle said Rogue. So I don't know which which one to go with. <laughs> which which did you see or hear? I heard Robe because like, that's literally what he was wearing. like The, the heavily armored robe that kept stopping the... Uh... The spear over and over again. That was so cool. <laughs> it's like he, it's an armored kimono. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminded me a lot of some of the uh, the armor patterns I would see in uh, like some of the Game of Thrones stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. That's true. Then we've got Yang Sung who played Brasshead. Um, he's the fourth in command of the Chisa Gang, and his style is basically incorporates fatal headbutts from his brass helmet. And uh, Dick Way, he seemed he seemed more like a, a an out of place Bond villain, didn't he? Yeah, like <laughs> it was like the worst. Like everybody else, at least like could do stuff, but he was just like, oh, I'm gonna headbutt you, right, it's right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Now the one that confused me the most, well, not really confused me, but I was a little frustrated. We had Dick Way was was back in the um, in with the Venom mob. He played the Sand Palm Fighter whose palm strike can kill a man within hours if not treated, but I don't think we even saw his face. See, we just saw his hands go through the wall when he hits Lee, and that's it. And Lee turns around and, you know, stabs him through the wall. Yeah, it might have been, like, uh, maybe there was, like, a longer scene that got cut or something. Maybe, yeah. Because he's not really listed as, you know, because they all have something. They've got the spear or the armor or the headbutting thing. And he's got the sand palm, but he's not listed as one of the, you know, the main guys of the Chisa gang. Right. 
So I just thought that was interesting. Almost almost like they it's like a plot device. Like they purposely put him in there just to have him poison Lee. Yeah. So one thing I found out actually purely by accident, I happened to be looking the movie up and there was um a website came up and for some reason it didn't play the whole movie, but it, it started playing like the first forty minutes of the film and it had it was in Chinese with subtitles and it had um right at the very beginning of the opening shot, there's a sign above Yang and uh, the subtitle said that the sign said Who Why Security Bureau. And that wasn't, I don't think that was in the Prime version, the subtitle. So I thought that was cool because that kind of cleared it up a little bit for me. I wasn't quite sure where they were and who they were at first. And then when I went back and looked at that, I was like, oh, okay, they're the Security Bureau and Yang is the, the chief of the Bureau. Yeah, it was almost like it was a, uh, um, you know, it was just understood through context that that's what they were doing. Right. So. He manages to gather, as we said in the summary, Yan and Fang and Lee and Miss Lang to carry the gold. And they're waiting. Haito is supposed to show up. And I saw him referred to as um, as sheriff or government agent. So it's take, it's one of those take your pick kind of thing. And, of course, the, one, of the, one of Yang's guys comes in and he, the Chisaw gang carve their name in his back and he drops dead. So Yang knows that. You know, the Chisaw is going to try and steal the gold. As we said, you know, Yen and Fang go ahead to scout. And I thought it was funny because Yen mentions that the gang is going to ambush them. As soon as he mentions the fact that, oh, they're going to ambush us, they get ambushed. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot of that. I think it's almost um, unintentional comedy. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of like the end. It's, I think I'll retire. Oh, right. You know, like, <laughs> And they did it again later on in the film, too, where the Yen's like, geez, you'd think they would have attacked us by now, and then they get attacked. It's like... Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's it's definitely unintentional comedy. Yeah. Because um, these, you know, these, these films do have their fair share of, you know, humorous moments. But, you know, overall, they go for a serious vibe. But, yeah, there are, there are those moments where it's like... You know, it's like, that's so ridiculous. And I can understand where like some, some audiences might look at that and be like, oh, well, this is why you can't take these seriously because I mean, look at what they're doing. Right. (laughs) But I think that's done for specific reasons. You know, they're clearly on a set, you know, it's, you know, it's just a filmmaking choice and, you know, that's not what you're supposed to be watching. Like you're supposed to be watching like this intensely choreographed fight scene with you know a dozen people in it which is very difficult to do and you know we've talked about this before with uh with other films where you know if you're watching you're watching this film and it's one steady shot even like the camera movements are following you know like uh i noticed one specific uh sequence where you know two of the 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 fighters like they kind of, uh, their weapons clashed and hit the ground and the camera followed the weapon down and back up. So it was like, you didn't miss anything. Right. Right. As opposed to the fight scenes we're used to seeing where a guy throws a punch and there's three cuts to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is definitely well, well shot film. Um, Chang Chang, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Chang Chang knew what he was doing or Che Chang. I always get his name confused because I see it written different ways. It's either Chang Che or mm-hmm. Che Chang. So I guess you can go with whatever. But yeah, and, and Short Axe and Long Axe, I thought they had great chemistry together. And they were hilarious. They were just really funny. 
Oh yeah, they were great. Like the the, the back and forth, the uh, the thing that you mentioned earlier about you know they they meet up with the seven hooks and it's like, well, you killed three and I killed three. And it's like, oh well, you know, let's not be rude. Yeah. And they killed the last guy together, and it's like, you know, I I, I like that. I thought that was that was funny. Like that was you know that was the intentional pun. Right. Yes. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and these guys have that that chemistry that they're able to, uh, to do that. And they're very expressive in their, uh, their facial, uh, their facial expressions are very, I don't want to say like over the top or exaggerated, but you know, it definitely accentuates, you know, the comedy. And, you know, uh, we see Philip Kwok do that as a uh, high And when he's, you know, supposed to be drunk, like I think it's, uh, like, you know, the big opening, opening your eyes really wide as you're saying stuff. And I, I don't know if it's maybe just like a product of that particular region where they're, where they're filming, because I noticed that like Bolo Young would do that all the time in, in like uh, any of the films he was in, like uh, Kickboxer, not Kickboxer, uh, Bloodsport, you know, because oh, yeah. they dubbed him over in that. Like he always had like the big eyes and like he's very expressive. You know, even when he wasn't speaking, right? You know, right? Yeah, that that's really cool. And you know, I thought of this earlier. I, I was going to say, and I forgot. It was um when I watched when I put on Invincible Shaolin after watching this for the second time, I did notice that the dubbing was were the same voices for the same actors. So mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. At least it was, even if they didn't quite fit the person's face, I thought they, it was consistent, and I liked that. Yeah. So then we've got um, Iron Robe, who claims not to fight women, and then Hito intervenes and drives him off, and or I think he kills him, right? And then um, he tells he tells Miss Lang, you know, a man's best friend is wine, and he claims that he fights best when he's drunk. Which, like you said, that was so cool to see the Drunken Master style. I think, uh, have you ever seen the the movie Drunken Master with Jackie Chan? I haven't seen the whole thing, but I've seen, like, clips of it, you know, in different, like, uh, like documentary style um, films where they're, like, talking about, the you know, either his life or, you know, the, the different films that came out at different times. Right. And, yeah, it's, there was, uh, oh, uh, there's a movie, um where I did see drunken style. It's called uh, sidekicks. Um, it's an old, old movie with, uh, Jonathan Brandis and Chuck, Chuck Norris. Norris. Yep. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the Jonathan Brandis's father's love interest, her dad runs a Chinese restaurant. He's, he does, uh, like there's a bunch of guys that are like really like racist jerks at the restaurant. And, so he comes out like drunken master style, like, you know, spilling hot stuff all over them and like hitting them in the face. And, yeah, it's 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 awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Philip Kwok, like you said, he did a great job here with the character. He um, although he didn't appear to me, even though the amount that he was drinking in the film, he didn't appear quite so drunk. Like, I don't know. I, I thought he would have been drunker because but maybe his, his tolerance was high because he just lived on it. Yeah, well, that's what he says. I don't drink water. I only drink wine. That's why I didn't get the. Uh, that's why I didn't get poisoned. Right, and then I thought it was funny because it's funny the first pass through this film, when he goes into the um, 
the restaurant and Silver Spear and Brasshead uh, obviously have the phony beards. And I'm watching it going, wow, that makeup job's terrible on those guys. Like, you could tell those beards are phony. And then, of course, they were phony. So I was like, okay. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, <laughs> this is awful. Like, I'm like, whatever, you know. Like, you know, I, I tracked it up to, I'm like, you know, the, the fake blood just looks like, you know, really thin marinara sauce. So. Right. <laughs> I read that they used syrup, and they didn't specifically say caro syrup, but they used syrup to make the uh, make the blood effect. Yeah, I mean that's you know, a little bit of food coloring with some like caro syrup is. Yeah, it's just it's just funny though. I mean, they definitely lessened it because this movie was really bloody, and um, yeah, there was blood everywhere. But uh, so then the the sand palm strike when the arms come through the wall and hits Lee in the back, and it like not only leaves an imprint on his back, like it, it, it removes the layer of, of the robe that he was wearing in the shape of a hand, leaves an imprint of, of the hand on his back, and all it goes all the way through the front. So he's got an imprint of the hand on, the, on his chest as well, which I thought was really cool. All I could think of was uh, from Invincible Shaolin yep. when they're showing the training at the beginning, and they have like the two perfect hand prints on right. them. The training. I, I had the same thing. I exactly the same thing that made me think of that. I wonder what that is. If that's something in Chinese lore that people, you know, could do that somehow. I mean, it's probably based on something. I mean, I, I know that you know, you know, when you slap somebody hard enough, like you leave a hand imprint. That's on their true. Back. <laughs> but I've never slapped somebody hard enough to punch a hole through their shirt and then leave a mark on their chest. Yeah. And it was it was cool when Golden Arm, you know, is offering the position to High Toe, and uh, he's contemplating it. And then finally, he's like, "Okay, but I want to be in charge." And he says a second thing, and then he's reaching in his brain for a third thing, and doesn't come up with it. And it's like, "Yeah, that's just it. That's what I want." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's trying to think. He's like, "Yeah," and I also, yeah, just yeah. yeah, that's fine. <laughs> When and um, one line that Yang said that I thought was kind of cool was um, the the word is that the underworld were scared to attempt to steal the gold because of the Chisaw gang, so that sort of in my mind that sort of explained away why there were no other highway robbers. It was just the gang because everybody else was afraid of the gang. Yeah, and they don't want to they don't want to cross them. Right, and then um, they they catch a guy hanging out outside one of the one of the gang members. And so, you know, Yang and Fang bring him in, and they have this discussion about torture and how they really shouldn't torture people. It's it's not really good, and probably should just kill them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, less, less, uh, less worry about vengeance that way. Yeah, exactly. And then um, what I thought was funny, and it, this reminded me of Death Rides a Horse, where somehow the Chisa have a trap door under all the gold. <laughs> And I was like, no, the trap door again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to have a trap door in, you know, there's a, there's at least got to be a trap door somewhere. Right. <laughs> you know, because if you don't have a trap door, what are you, what are you even doing? Exactly. <laughs> I wonder if they, it's like, you know, when they were coming up with the script, like, okay, well, we need, we need a, a handprint on somebody and a trap door. <laughs> well, I mean, probably what they, what they would, what they do is, you know, I imagine they're they're at a pitch meeting and it's just like okay we have the trap door, how do we make a movie around this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you start you start with 
you start with the trapdoor and then work the plot around that. That's awesome. And you know, at first I'm watching it going, "Wait, this is this is, you know, the bureau. This is their office. How do they not know there was a trapdoor there?" But then afterwards, I guess it was obvious that it was Yang that probably set it up to begin with. But I still don't know how he could have done that without letting anybody else know that there was one there unless he just paid off the construction workers or something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those, like, it's not really explained, but it's kind of, it's just, you know, understood that, you know, this guy knew about it, nobody else did, and that's all that matters. Right, yeah, I'm thinking too hard about it. <laughs> what I didn't understand, though, on his sword, Yang's sword, he's he's got a large, like a, a scimitar, almost, kind of sword, but then it's got these rings along the the non-bladed edge, and I just didn't understand why that was there. Wouldn't that, wouldn't, do you think that would throw the balance of the sword off? Um, no, I think it, it's it's all in the, the different styles that you're going to use, and it's in the, like, the, especially with Chinese martial arts, things are done a specific way, and, and the, the, um, the weapons are created a specific way um, for uh, specific movements. You know, like uh, we see the, the Tai Chi sword that, um, uh, what's his name uses? Uh, Lee? Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, yeah, the, the, the one who got hit with the, the older brother's slap of death. Yeah, yeah, Lee. Um, <laughs> he, uh, slap of death. <laughs> like, those are, those are incredibly, like, flexible. And then, but like all the other swords that you saw, those were Chinese broadswords. Right, okay. And those are typically just used in, in Kung Fu. And then I don't know the name of the last one with the rings in it, but, like, there's a specific reason for those rings. And I forget what movie. I think it was a, it was a Jet Li movie where he was fighting a guy with one of those, and he, like, hooked his finger into him and pulled the sword away from the guy. <laughs> I was like, you're good, but I don't know if you're that good. Right. Like if yeah, you could do that against me, probably, <laughs> but not a not a master. But yeah, it's um everything was done and made in a specific way because like you see like the weird curvature of the handles or uh, yeah, it's it's weird. Like you'll see all the uh, like the tassels or like the, the little flags that are on everything. Like that's basically used to add extra grip if your weapon gets too bloody. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And you don't want to... Like, when you when you see, like, the tassels at the end of a Tai Chi sword, like, that's what that's for. It's for wrapping around the handle so you can get a better grip in case uh, there's too much blood. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I, th- I thought it was funny when Brasshead gets killed, his last words are, Thank you! Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Again, he's, he's just this weird Bond villain kind of thing. He's kind of... You almost could see that he was going to get killed, you know, want to be one of the first ones to be killed. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised by that. Right. Because <laughs> all he can do is headbutt people. But mm-hmm. what I thought was interesting was they were, when they fight, they, you know, Golden Arm shows up, which I did not expect him to show up right away. And I thought that was interesting. But when they fight him and he beats them with his bare hands, they're, they're shocked by that fact. They're shocked by he, the fact that he could beat him, beat them with his bare hands. But they're not shocked by the fact that he seems impervious to blades. I mean, was that like a common thing? <laughs> yeah, like that's 
I mean, I, 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 I'm familiar with like iron hand technique where, you know, you, uh, you get <clears throat> micro fractures in your bones so that when they heal, they kind of, they're calcified over. Yeah. So that when you, you know, that makes them stronger. And I've seen, you know, there was a, a an amazing documentary called Budo, the art of killing. And one of these, uh, he was an iron, iron hand master, but he had done it to like all of his, all of his uh, entire, like his arms and his legs. And people were like, he'd hold his arm out and somebody smashed a two by four over his arm. Wow. You know, and you'll see that with uh, some of the Muay Thai guys because it's a lot of elbow and knee and shin strikes. Yeah. Like the micro fractures cause everything, like I said, to, to be calcified and harden the bone. So you can, if you're a, a, a Muay Thai expert, you could kick through a baseball bat. Wow. You know, and, and that's one of those things where it's like, even if you block that kick, you're still going to get a significant amount of damage to you because it's like being hit with a baseball bat. Right. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's one thing to, to hit a wooden, a wooden weapon, but he's like using it to defend against swords, using his arms and the, the, the swords are just not cutting his skin at all. Yeah. And that's, that's what I didn't get. I mean, that's where the, uh, the fantastical element comes in on this. Because uh, even the, the sound effects they use made it seem like it was steel striking steel. Right. You know, and gold is not a... Gold is a very soft metal. It is not something you're going to build a sword from. Exactly, yeah. You know, you might gold plate a steel sword or an iron sword, but you're not going to make a weapon out of gold. Like, that's... That's just crazy talk. Right, right. It'd be like making a weapon out of lead. It's just no, <laughs> it's too soft. Did you, all right, so did you catch the blooper that happened? It was, a ma- I thought it was a major blooper in the movie. When uh, oh. Kimono throws the flare into the air. No. You see the flare just sort of stops in the air and it's hovering there and you could see the wires. It was just so obvious that it was hung by wires. It looked so awful. <laughs> uh, I was just, uh, complete, I guess I must have just completely missed that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, there was, you got to go back and look at it. There were a couple of things that I was like, oh, that looks kind of off. Like, it's almost like they were playing stuff on a screen in the background. And there was a scene with the cart right before everybody rested. And everybody ended up getting poisoned by all the little spikes everywhere. Yeah. It's almost like they were standing in front of a screen that had the cart on it. Because the cart wasn't moving, but it was almost like they stopped the film. And, like, there was, like, that little bit of motion blur. It was like, yeah, this thing was still moving when they stopped the film. It might have just been, you know, the transfer or whatever, but it it looked like... They took a still photo of the of the cart with the gold, but it was still moving Interesting. in the picture. Interesting. I'll have to go back and look at that again. I didn't notice that one. That's cool. And then, of course, at the cart, we've got, you know, Haito is fighting, and he jumps over the cart, and Iron Robe follows suit, and he gets a spear to the crotch. <laughs> yeah, that, oof. <laughs> and then he pulled it out and killed that, that last guy. Right. Oh man, that was that was brutal. That was really brutal. I couldn't believe they, that we, they did that. Well, I mean, it was that, or 
like stab him in the face. And I don't think the, uh, the uh, motion picture association of China would let them do that. Like that seemed a little, a little much. I have a feeling that like, especially when they came to the States, these movies probably didn't get cut too much because nobody was paying attention. They've just figured there was stupid Kung Fu movies. And, um, I think a lot, a lot survived when they got shown in theaters here. I would imagine. Then it's interesting. Um, the scene after that he arrives at the carriage, and he's talking to himself, and he basically catches us up on the plot. If we were confused up to this point, we are no longer confused. But did you think he knew that Haito was hiding in the bushes? I kind of thought that he was he was thinking that. Yeah, it, it was definitely uh, an exposition dump, and it's like, oh, I wonder who he's talking to. It's like, oh. I'll let them fix right. the carriage, and then I'll steal the gold later on. Ha <laughs> ha! And he runs off. It's like, right, right. If he had a mustache, he would have. I been thought torn. it worked, though. It didn't seem like it was forced exposition. I I thought it added a little charm to the character and to the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, nonstop fights throughout the film too was was just amazing. I was really happy with that because uh, I have a book. I. Um, it's about you know the greatest uh, kung fu movies of the seventies and uh, martial arts movies, I should say, and it it rates them like how what percentage of the film has a fight scene, and this one had thirty five percent. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's pretty. I mean, it was very entertaining. There was a lot of it's like oh here's a little bit of exposition fight scene here's a little right. bit of uh, you know plot <laughs> development fight scene like very enjoyable. Very nice. I, I I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. And um, so then we get to the point where um, Haito takes Lee to the smoke, which I didn't realize it was a crematorium until I read the um, the plot synopsis from online. But I thought it was just a smokehouse. And yeah, did it seem obvious to you that he was putting him in there to just sweat out the poison? Because I I kind of thought that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It it seemed very obvious to me because you know, and he's he's telling. Uh, uh, the lady there and she's like he's like yeah we're gonna we're gonna uh, burn him down to his ashes it's like i'm gonna have a tough time doing that when like the flames are all on like the opposite sides and he's just like thrown in the middle right <laughs> it's like you just threw him in there you didn't like build him a pyre and then like light it like you just kind of tossed him there right right he was just messing with her and it was funny because she was so easily she so easily fell for everything he said yeah She's like, oh, you're such a jerk. He's like, ha Yeah. <laughs> I did like the, the fact that he's, he promised them like uh, 10 pieces of silver to help him. And then they're like, where's our money? He's like, no, nah, you didn't save me. You saved him. Get the money from him. Right. He'll probably give you 100. <laughs> that was great. And just the expression on his face when he was like motioning to, to Lee. <laughs> it's great. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Oh, and he was mad. He was so mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> He was, he was mad for so many different things because he was pissed that now he's in debt to Haito. Pissed because he he told the girl that he didn't want to see a doctor and he was going to go out fighting. <laughs> see, I don't get that. It's like if you if you get cured, you can fight better as opposed to like what you did against uh, Silver Spear there where you're like, I'll fight you uh, and fall into the dirt. Right. Like, <laughs> So then we've got the um, Yang and his men get to the wagon. And then, first of all, when you go to sit anywhere, especially like in the woods, don't you look at what you're going to sit on before you sit on it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, 
let me just check for poison spikes real quick. <laughs> you know, especially in the woods, like I don't want to be sitting on any like you know poison ivy or anything like right, that because that's animal crap. Not something you need. Yeah, you know. <laughs> like, oh, let me just sit on this well placed log. Right. <laughs> So that was kind of a stretch for me, I thought. And then how do you not, how do you sit down all the way on those spikes? I mean, they're like, what, four inches? Wouldn't you, as soon as you felt the pinch, go, ah, what the hell's that? And jump off? Yeah, I mean, we saw the other guy, like the guy who stepped on it. Like, he died really quickly, but right. like, not without reacting. Like, these other guys didn't <laughs> die without reacting. Like, you know, they just sat down and they're like, oh. Guess I'm dead. <laughs> and at first, when when the guys are sitting on the on the log, and then they just keel over, and there's blood on their butts, I'm like, "What the heck? That is just nasty!" And then they show the spikes, and it was like, "Oh man, they they really enjoy their, their butt and crotch kills in this movie." Yeah, it's a uh, so kind of a disturbing uh, disturbing. It's like, what is this trend? What are you going with right now? Right. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he was just trying to, uh, you know, push the envelope a little bit, see what he could get away with. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. You know, and the the thing that confused me at the time, too, was like, you know, how did, and they even said it, was how did the Chisan know they were going to stop there for a rest? But, right. you know, it's obviously they, you know, what's his name, Yang had it set up. It's almost like they were trying to set him up as like a, a supernatural organization. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was leaning towards when watching the film. Uh, but I did think it was really cool when they, they figured out to tie the wooden planks to the bottom of their feet so they wouldn't step on the spikes. I thought that was very clever. Yes. And then um, Lee gets healed, which was a cool scene where the, the handprint comes off and he starts to come back to normal. And um, they let him out. It was kind of interesting that it seemed that High Toe knew exactly how long it would take because he's sitting out there drinking the wine and the Almost like he looks at his, even though he doesn't have a watch, it was like, you know, he just knew, okay, he's done. <laughs> Open the door. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting. Well, you know, that's the power of wine. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> wine is everything. So he finally catches up and he finally joins Yang's party. And um, uh, I thought it was interesting, too, with the wine jugs. More wine jugs get smashed. And I thought it was cool. They have these, like, paper tops on them that are kind of sealed and it's you, you basically just poke a hole in the in the paper and then drink from it so i thought that was that mm-hmm. was cool i'd never seen that before yeah i mean it's uh you know it was something new for me you know because i hadn't seen that but it's like oh that makes sense yeah i mean i don't think you're specifically supposed to drink like this huge you know like five gallon thing of right of, uh, wine <laughs> yeah it's meant to be poured into but, a cup <laughs> yeah which is what the little spout was for. Right. So I, I just thought that was interesting. It was kind of a neat cultural thing that, you know, we don't have here. Like, they they could have easily, I guess they could have made lids to go in the jars, but they'd fall off. But the paper stays somehow. So I yeah, I, I tried doing a little research onto how they did that, but I couldn't really, I just did a cursory search. I couldn't find anything right away. But it'd be interesting to know what the process was to get the paper to stick to the to the out, outer part of the jug. It's probably some kind of, like, you know, resin. Yeah, that's what I figured, like a glue or something. Yeah. Maybe tree sap or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, depending on where, what region and, like, how uh, how much uh, detail is going into it. Because, I mean, these weren't, like, you know, super 
these are just like clay pots essentially. Right. You know, they weren't like, you know, just like, oh, let's just, you know, make a bunch of these, you know, they weren't like, you know, very nice stylized like vases or, or things like that. It's just like, yeah, we're just going to throw some some cheap like rice wine in here or plum wine. and There you go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It wasn't it wasn't for the aristocracy. Right, right. Oh man, and um, Hi Hi has a cool line where he it's almost kind of prescient because I think he's talking to Miss Ling and he says, uh, "Maybe when the mission is over, we'll all be dead." And I just thought that was kind of a foreshadowing kind of a line, which was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those um, not like gloom and doom, but it's just like you know we're recognizing our own mortality. It's like it's like yeah, you know when this is all over, you know you and I are gonna fight. It's like who says we're going to be alive? Like getting a little ahead of yourself. Right. Yeah. You know, like all those people who, who are buying 2021 calendars right now. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's get there first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. I, I always forget to buy a calendar and then the year changes. And then by the time I think to buy a calendar, it's too late. I'm like, oh, it's already February. I'm not going to bother buying one. <laughs> I mean, I, I find, uh, you know, we found a sealed calendar the other day. It's like, oh, great. What is it? Oh, 2016. <laughs> we never opened it. That's funny. <laughs> oh, man. So then um, one thing that was cool that they kept foreshadowing was his uh, little drinking pouch there, his canteen. They showed it two or three times throughout the movie that he kept it in his shirt. Because then he he pulls it out here again when they get to the town. And, of course... There's poison everywhere in the town, which, okay, yeah, Yang's good. He set up some stuff, but how did he set all that up? I mean, that was another kind of a stretch, I thought. Well, I mean, it's, he's got to have accomplices, you know, uh, Golden Arm and, and whatnot. I will say, though, that uh, the the torch ring trap yep. was brilliant. Absolutely, absolutely. That was so cool. And it was cool that because uh, as soon as he uh, well, it was high that looked at it, you knew there was something wrong there. Mm-hmm. I thought they were going to explode. Like See, I did. I did, too. Like, you know, or like combust in some way, like cause a fire or whatever. Right. Um, I did like the way that they, you know, they used, you know, it's like, oh, this is how we're going to we're going to do this. It wasn't like, you know, something cheap or you know you know ignoring the laws of physics and it's just like no once this expanded you know it would fall out you know it's almost like it's setting a timer yeah you know or setting a fuse and it's like oh that's so cool like i really like the way that that was done yeah they, that was really cool and it was thrilling too you know with the as they're in the room and then they had to get out and he closed just as he closes the door the the pink smoke or whatever it was um Hit the poison gas hits the wall. I just thought that was a yeah. really cool scene. I was like, we should probably sleep outside tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, they could potentially sleep on poison needles, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So then, um, Haito goes to this restaurant the next day, and he's just sitting there, and the Chisai show up, and they kill all the people at the restaurant for no reason. <laughs> I was like, what? They, they couldn't just make them leave? 
oh yeah, this is the the silver spear scene. Yeah, and he's like, I'm gonna have to arrest all of you. And they're like, you're not gonna arrest us. Oh, so you're resisting arrest? I guess I'll have to kill you all. Right. Like, it's like that escalated quickly. Oh my god! Yeah, it's like okay, well, all right. <laughs> that almost seems like you know what I said about the writer, what he had seen in China of of people getting death sentences for stupid things. I wonder if that was an echo of that in his writing. Probably, like you know, they say you know you write what you know. Yeah. You know, and if there's an experience that you have that I'm sure you can, if you can put it into you know. Uh, a film or something. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that's uh, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, yeah, I just thought that was interesting because at first I was just like, "What the hell?" And then now it kind of makes sense with the with the writer being who he was. Um, but then High kills one guy with a broken wine jug. He like slices his chest with the with the the ceramic or the pottery, or whatever it was. I thought that was kind of kind of yeah. gross. That was a great. That was a great, uh, a great kill. Like the guy chopped it in half, and he's like, "Oh, well, I'll just use these to shred your intestines." <laughs> that was awesome. It worked too because it scared off the other guys. He didn't have to fight them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wrecked most of those dudes. But and then you get to a, um, a a scene where they're actually outdoors. They weren't on a set, which I thought was a nice change of pace. Mm-hmm. It was very brief, but it was cool to see. I wonder I wonder why they did it if they just didn't have enough indoor set or it wasn't available that day or you know, it must have taken a lot to get to take all the equipment and the actors and get everybody the crew get everybody out there just for one scene, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I think it's uh it's definitely depending on the what's going on like having a set is easier especially with some of the acrobatics that was uh, that were being performed yeah like you can you know easily more easily attach a wire to something in a set right if you're outside it's a little more difficult but some of the the acrobatics that uh, Philip quack did in that final confrontation scene like the backflips the the uh you know, the springing up off his back, like, oh, it's so cool. Oh, it's yeah. so cool. Yeah, and it's so clear, too, in, in these movies, these guys do all their own stunts. There's no stuntmen here, you know, except, you know, uh, with the um, the minions, the henchmen are pretty much all stuntmen, but these guys, the main actors, they do everything themselves. Yeah. So then, you know, Spear and X uh, uh, get, get attacked again. Why haven't we been attacked? And, of course, they get attacked. And mm-hmm. um, Silver Spear fills fills Yan up with daggers, and then kills him. And then him and Shortax had a really great fight, which he's very athletic. The um, the actor there, yeah. Chen I will Chen. say though that 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 uh, that move by Silver Spear was just the biggest punk move. It's like, oh, he's distracted. Let me just chuck daggers at his back. <laughs> what a scumbag. And, well, and then Fang gets sucker speared from behind too. I was like, "You mm-hmm. bastard!" These guys are always talking about honor and stuff, and yet they're stabbing people in the back left and right. Yeah, it, it's that was like the one part that I kind of felt was a little inconsistent with the rest of the movie. Yeah, 
but I guess, you know, it's just we need a way to kill these guys off, and they're clearly more skilled. So, and we can't have, uh, you know, Golden Arm beat everybody and then, <laughs> you know, have Hightow just, you know, come in and beat them one-on-one. Yeah, that's true. And But it was um, the whole scene where Fang and and uh, Silver Spear, they look like they're dead, but then they're going to, then it looked like they were going to go back in and fight again. It was sort of like the last movie where, oh, well, I've been mortally wounded, but I'm still going to fight you. But then they just dropped dead on the ground, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, like that's another one of those unintentional comedy things. Yeah. It's like they both took spears through the gut and they're like, ha ha, I will still fight you. Oh, I'm dead. Yeah. And that's one thing that um, Fang's death made me think of is that in these movies, no one's safe. It's even though they're recurring action stars, you know, like we have Stallone and Schwarzenegger and them in, in these movies, there's no guarantee that any of them are going to make it out of the film alive. Right. You know, it's like just because you're on the movie poster doesn't mean you're going to make it to the end. Like, you know, you watch a, a Stallone or, or a Schwarzenegger movie. It's like, yep. OK, well, I know who's making it through the entire film. Right. Like, no matter what happens, <laughs> you know. Like there's a running joke about the uh, the Fast and Furious series where it's like, you know, uh, I, there's no there's no need to ever worry about anyone in peril. It's like, oh, I just drove my car, you know, off a cliff and it exploded six times, but oh, my shirt's a little dirty. Right. You know, <laughs> you know like there's no there's no need to worry about the the principal actors because nothing is ever going to happen to them. Right, exactly. Oh my god. That's so funny. And Golden Arms has a great line when he shows up uh, at a later point and he goes, "I don't need a weapon. My arms always stay with me." <laughs> well, duh. Until until you get your arms cut off then what? Right, right. Although I guess that can't happen. And he would be literally and figuratively disarmed. Yeah. And when he's fighting, he's fighting Lee. And I thought, because they, they made a specific point to show a close-up shot of Lee's sword on Golden Arm's arm. And I thought he was going to, like, cut off his golden wristbands and that would take away his power. But that didn't actually happen, so. Yeah, I mean, like, it, that definitely crossed my mind as well. It's like, oh, is this how he loses, his, like, what is this ability that he has? Like, how is this? It's never explained. No. You know, and even, like, he's clearly, uh, you know, the best fighter of the entire group. Because even after being blinded, he's pretty much unbeatable. Right. And the thing that blew me away, the scene was when he's fighting Lee, he wraps his arm around Lee's sword and then he takes it and corkscrews it into Lee. <laughs> I was like, that totally blew me away. Yeah, like first, yeah, first wrapping it like, like I said, Chinese Tai Chi swords are very uh, pliable, but not that pliable. <laughs> like they're not slap bracelets, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> like yeah, he wrapped it around his arm so he could pull it away from him, and then unwrapped it twisted it into a corkscrew and just like you know ice drilled it through his stomach it's like what <laughs> yeah like, well it's not getting back into the sheath at this point right, right. <laughs> yeah 
You know, and after all that, getting rid of the poison, he gets corkscrewed by a sword. <laughs> like, what the fuck? He's like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about this poison anymore. And then he steps out and gets hit by a bus. <laughs> but that, I have to say, I've never seen anything like that before in a movie. I thought that was very, uh, very well done, even though it's, you know, not very plausible. <laughs> right. You know, again, you know, you have to take some of the stuff with, you know, a grain of salt where it's, you know, a guy does like these, you know, Although in this movie it wasn't as bad as uh, Invincible Shaolin, where you know the acrobatics were like Matrix level, right? It's like, oh, I'm gonna do twelve backflips before hitting the ground. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. A lot of the um, stunt coordinators. I think there was one major stunt coordinator that worked on a lot of these films, and he was an advisor on the Matrix movies, particularly the first one. Yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, because obviously, you know, where do you go when you want to do a lot of cool wire work? You go to the people that invented it. <laughs> right. You go to the source. And then it was interesting when it just comes down to, like, Miss Lee is standing there. And I don't understand. I mean, I understand why he did it, but it was just bizarre where Hightoe has this long bamboo pole and he's he puts it up to near her ear and he's just whispering to her. <laughs> It's like, dude, you're three feet away. I know. <laughs> like that, yeah, that to me was uh, a bit extra. That again seemed like something like, oh, they've got this bamboo pole. What, what, we got this bamboo pole. What can we do with it? <laughs> yeah, I thought like he might like fight with it or something. Right. It's like, oh, what's the significance of this bamboo pole? It's like, oh, he's just telling her something from... And it's like, oh, I'm trying to remain inconspicuous. And it's like, with a giant pole sticking up out of the water. Like, right. <laughs> no one will notice this pole here. <laughs> so then we finally, finally get what we've been waiting for. Haito and Golden Arm face off. And I was very happy when they finally got to this point because I've been looking forward to the, watching the two of them go at it. And, you know, Yang gives Haito his sword and arm just shatters it. <laughs> like, yeah, like he he breaks it up like you know, uh, like you're shattering you know a, a, an ice cream cone. He just like grabs it and crushes it up and just like it's like wow, that was pretty impressive. Then he used like those those little hooks that kept like exp- like the chain on them kept expanding. Right, right. That was so cool. Um, I really did like the scene. They did it in slow motion where. He was swinging the chain around, and Golden Arm would jump, and then like he would like almost like push himself off the ground in a push-up position to get, you know, to have it swing underneath of him. Yeah, and it was interesting too because it seemed like they had two different levels of extension. You could do it like about three feet, and then six feet, whatever you know, yeah. whatever he needed. And I thought that was really awesome. It was really cool, and it was one of those like surprise weapons almost, you know, like with the silver spear earlier when he, you know, he was able to extend and retract the spear. Right. That was, that was really cool. And so you got to figure he had, now the summary that I read that, like I said, I found online, it, it just says he spits wine in high toes face. I'm sorry, in arms face, but that wouldn't blind you permanently. I was under the impression that he had poisoned the wine because he claimed to be impervious to poison anyways. So he had poisoned wine in his mouth and obviously he had to keep it in his mouth doing during the whole fight scene. 
so then he could spit it into Hito's face. I mean, I mean, Golden Arms' face. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought it was poison too. I mean, like, you know, if someone spit wine into my face, I don't think my eyes would bleed and I would be instantly blind. Right. <laughs> like, I I just assumed it was poison because he was like, he's like, I've been, I drank 20 bottles of wine yesterday with, you know, <laughs> antidote pills in them. It's like, well, you know, I hope it was the right antidote like, <laughs> because if he's using hemlock, you know, the antidote to say strychnine isn't going to help you or right if it's you know cyanide like i don't know what's going to help you with that yeah <laughs> so it definitely had to be you know poisoned poisoned wine in his mouth which again was that's a feat in and of itself trying to do all those acrobatics and fight moves and not spit out what's in your mouth <laughs> yeah like that that to me was uh was fairly impressive then we get um iron feet shows up and that's this confused the heck out of me i didn't get that iron feet and yang were not necessarily the same person but it was the same actor yeah so it confused me so they were working together but they didn't say they were twin brothers or anything they just happened to look alike yeah and like i think it would have made more sense had it just been the one guy and he you know, took off his his red outfit and is like, ha ha, I'm actually the bad guy. Like, that would have made way more sense than, oh, I've been hiding in this chest of gold the whole time. <laughs> it's like you, like, curled yourself up into a little ball and, like, now you're just, like, you know, walking with a bounce in your stuff. Like, how do you, how are you, like, that pliable and stretched out and ready to go? After being crammed into a container. Right. <laughs> like, I don't get that. Oh, man. So, yeah, like I said, I had to do a little research to figure out who he actually was. But even even still, all right, so they, Yang and Iron Feet look identical. Wouldn't Golden Arm have, when he saw Yang, have said, hey, wait a minute, aren't you Iron Feet? Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> hey, I know you. <laughs> it's like, right. Uh, no, I just look like him. <laughs> no, no, no. He's it's my cousin. You know, I'm regular feet. He's iron feet. Uh, but it did remind me a lot of his, um, the character in the la- in the last one, Invincible Shaolin, that had like the special kicking ability. Right. And then Golden Arm just comes up and just punches right through him from behind. Yeah. But, you know. Well, yeah, because that was, was really cool. Because he was blind and he could hear because he had the the showdown with Iron Feet while, uh, uh, what's his name was sitting there pretending like, oh no, I'm dead because I got slashed in the side on a surprise That's attack. Right, yeah, but it's like no, your wine skin got slashed. But right. he was, and <laughs> like when you find that out, because you're like, all right, he's acting like he just got slashed in the side, but it's like no, it's just your wine. All right, you're being way over dramatic here. Right. Um, <laughs> I think he did that on purpose to see what would happen in the fight. And it was it was definitely very interesting because uh, Iron Feet would then stop, like, when he figured out. And this is a cool thing. Like, I didn't know Philip Kwok could, could wiggle his ears the way he did. Uh, yeah. You know, to... No, it was um, uh, Lo, uh, Lo Meng. Yeah, I Lo think. Meng. Sorry, not Philip Kwok. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to, to be able to, like, 
wiggle his ears that way to hear what was going on because he was blind and he was able to still fight. And that to me was some of the best choreography, like because he's fighting blind. Right. Or with his eyes closed. And that was just an amazing scene overall, because especially they had this like um, eerie music when, when Iron Feet finally figures out to just not move, then he, he can't hear where I'm at. And, Golden Arms is trying to figure out where he is, you know, like you said, using his ears. And just the music that was playing there was really eerie. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it worked so well. Yeah, and then he, he kicked him in the back and then uses the exact same thing because while he's fighting uh, Philip Kwok, he ends up uh, stumbling backwards right at Golden Arm, who punches right through his, his stomach, which I thought was nuts. And then we get another one of those unintentional comedy things like, thank you for showing mercy and not killing me. I guess I'll just live yeah. out the rest of my days in quiet solitude, knife through the chest. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like as soon as he says it, you know, it's like a, his death scene w- was so overly dramatic because it, re- it reminded me of, of, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the Gilligan's Island episode where Ginger was trying to teach Gilligan how an actor does a death scene and she's going, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. That was like, that's all I could think of when he's like, he was basically doing that, even though he wasn't saying that. It was, that's the impression I got. <laughs> yeah, that was like the most over the top. It's like, you, it looked like he was fighting a swarm of invisible bees. Like, right. <laughs> but it was one of those, um, it was, it was like, you know, I guess I'll just, uh, you know, live out my days. You know, it's, it's like, you know, the death sentence for a cop. Oh, I'm only two days left from retirement. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, I I definitely I really love this movie. It was very different than the previous films that we've covered and but it was just thoroughly enjoyable and fast ta- fast-paced and entertaining um with the characters were entertaining. It wasn't very confusing. You know, once you once you get past the fact that an English person dubbed their voices, you realize that these guys were not only great martial artists, but they were good actors as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's uh, you know the the Chinese actors are much better than the American actors, to be honest with you. Right, I think that's hurt a lot of foreign films in the past where with bad dubbing, especially like the giant monster movies to come out of Japan and stuff. It's people look poo poo them because oh it's terrible acting. Well no, it's terrible dubbing. Yeah. It's it's not their fault. Like you're trying to match the dialogue to the mouth movements of an actor speaking in a different language. It's not like animation where they can digitally manipulate the mouth so that it you know closely more closely matches the English language. Yeah. So final thoughts, Pat, on uh the uh, kid with the golden arms. I really liked it. Um, I, I definitely recommend this if you are a, a fan of martial arts films, especially if you are a fan of you know the the, the films that came out in the sixties and seventies. Uh, this was just this is a well done film. It was well choreographed. Um, it had an interesting story. Um, I think I liked this one better than Invincible Shaolin. Uh, oh yeah mainly because it didn't have the, the subplot of like, you know, all the guys trying to, to hook up with the, the girls at the, the fruit stand, <laughs> like, which I just thought was superfluous. 
Right. I, I liked this one a lot and uh, I definitely recommend it. Excellent. Excellent. I recommend it too. And I think so moving forward for our purposes, since we've familiarized ourselves with these actors and Chang Che, I think we're going to continue and we should continue doing uh, more of the Venom Mob movies. We should just cover them all first before we start to expand out because if we go out and, and watch a different film with different actors and different cast and crew, it, it might confuse us if we d- then decide to come back to these films. So I think we should stay on this path. We'll, we'll backtrack a few movies and continue on doing um, the Venom Mob films. Does that sound good? Oh, yeah. Yeah, these are, uh, these are quality movies. Excellent, excellent. Okay, folks, well, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to do the Spaghetti Western, A Pistol for Ringo. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't. Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio!
Okay, next up we have the Spaghetti Western, A Pistol for Ringo from 1965. This movie was near the beginning of the Spaghetti Western explosion and actually has characteristics that sort of go against what had already been set up in these kinds of movies. For example, like with um, A Fistful of Dollars from 1964. This is one of those movies, Pat, that there are a ton of sequels to, like the Django movies or Sabata. Uh, The only official sequel to this movie is called The Return of Ringo with the director and actor... Uh, reprising their roles, well, the director directing it and um, Giuliano Gemma reprising his role as as Ringo. Um, But there's a slew of other films with the word Ringo in the title. And it was pretty common practice back then to basically, you try to fool people into thinking a movie is somehow related to the popular original. So you just throw Ringo in the title, even if it has nothing to do with Ringo, people will go see it because they think it has something to do with Ringo. And they did that a lot with, like, the Django movies. There's, like, 27 Django movies and only one official sequel that happened in the 80s. Yes. This is a story of the famed angel-faced mercenary of the West, Ringo. If you can get it back and save the hostages get 10%. It's a matter of principle. Never enter into a deal for less than 30%. You looking for Angel Face, is that right? Well, you found him, I reckon. Cause I'm Angel Face. See how this one man with nerves of steel outwits and outmatches a whole implacable band of outlaws. You know how to shoot, but not how to kill. A pistol for Ringo. Well, take it or leave it. You got until tomorrow morning to give me your answer. God created men equal. Six guys. Made them different. Like I said, now all we have to do is get gone. Mario. Amigo. It ain't 40%. It's 50% now. Once again, he is pitted against odds and faced with one of the most bloodthirsty band of outlaws the West has ever known. They caused havoc and destruction wherever they set foot, but no one dared stand in their way. No one could stop them until... Ringo! Starring Montgomery Wood as Ringo, with Fernando Sancho, Hallie Hammond, Nevs Navarro, Antonio Casas, George Martin. A pistol for Ringo. Quick draw, fast, fast, fastest gun of the West will thrill you in one of the most dramatic, blood-tingling episodes of his career. Directed by Ducio Tassari.
this thrill-packed, fast-moving western, don't miss a pistol for Ringo. Sir Richard Starkey, uh, who won the uh, most excellent order of the British Empire, is uh, better known by his stage name of Ringo Starr. Oh wait, no, that's the that's the wrong guy. That's a that's a different Ringo. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I had to do that. I'm sorry. That's uh, uh, this 1965 that's film opens as uh, Sheriff Ben, who is portrayed by George Martin discusses the uh, Benson gang and his associate uh, with his associate, I believe it was uh, Tim. Um, he learns that they were all released and are on their way to confront our protagonist, the gunfighter known as Angel Face or Ringo, uh, played by, as you mentioned, Giuliano Gemma, but also credited as Montgomery Wood. But if you do a search on either IMDb or Wikipedia for Montgomery Wood, there's no official listing, and it comes up as Giuliano Gemma, which I thought was interesting. Uh, he kills the four men in a uh, gunfight, if you can call it a gunfight. Uh, he was playing hopscotch with some kids, and the guys showed up, and he said, if you step over that wall, you're going to get a bullet in the face, and they stepped over the wall, and so they got bullets in their faces. Uh, just as Sheriff Ben arrives to arrest him for manslaughter, despite the fact that he claimed self-defense. We then meet our antagonist, Sancho, played by Fernando Sancho. Hopefully he was able to remember that name. Uh, he gets confronted by a couple of cavalrymen who tell him he is crossing the border and to head back home. Sancho kills them both and then signals his gang to follow him. We see a woman wearing a black veil amidst the rest of the banditos. Back in town, we meet Ruby, played by Lorella DeLuca, at a general store. We get a bit of exposition and learn that uh, as Sheriff Ben comes in and smooth talks her, we learn that they're engaged. Uh, she's bought him a present, and her father is Major Clyde, Antonio Casas, and there's an upcoming bachelor party, and they're going to be drinking Dom Perignon 84. So I'm assuming this takes place shortly after the turn of the century, early 1900s. Uh, we then see the various members of Sancho's gang setting up in strategic locations all around the town, and the black-veiled woman is taken off to see the sheriff. Gang robs the bank, kills a few people there, and the black-veiled woman is, re is revealed to be Dolores, played by Nieves Navarro, and she is in on the uh, robbery, and thanks to her long-winded and meandering tale of bad men attacking her family, she was able to distract the sheriff long enough... <laughs> for the heist to go down. And uh, they only are alerted to it when the dynamite used uh, to open the safe explodes. Uh, she held, holds everyone in the, uh, in the jail or the sheriff's office, I guess, even though there is a small jail and that's where Ringo is playing cards with Tim, uh, holds them at gunpoint. The gang pulls up. She's able to, you know, hop onto the carriage and they all, escape and there's a bit of a shootout as uh, we see some of the classic tropes of westerns you know a guy getting shot off a roof and falling another guy getting shot and falling over a railing that just is so rickety that if you lean against it you're going to fall off it whether you're shot or not um <laughs> and uh, sheriff ben is able to uh, wound sancho by shooting him in the shoulder 
And there is a little bit of an inconsistency with this because we later see Sancho with a wound uh, on the, uh, a bullet hole in the back of his jacket, which indicates that the bullet went all the way through, but the bullet has to be removed. We'll get to that after. Uh, we then see uh, the bandits narrowly escape. A couple of guys get killed, and one guy suggests that they follow Sancho's own advice and leave him because he's wounded. Sancho responds by shooting the man in the face and uh, says, no, 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 you you didn't learn enough from me or you learned too much from me, depending on the translation, and continues to carry the $50,000 that they had stolen. Now, I was a little curious. I did some research on how much $50,000 weighs, and if it was all in 20s, it would only weigh about five and a half pounds. So, because uh, I was a little... <laughs> I was like, you know, this guy's got a busted up shoulder and he's got to hang on to the horse. How is he also holding on to 50 grand? But five pounds isn't, isn't bad. Wow. Uh, so they, uh, find a, uh, they find a small like ranch or a hacienda. And it just so happens to be the hacienda where major Clyde and Ruby live. Uh, the, the bandit gang storms the hacienda and takes them hostage uh, you know, Sheriff Ben and his men are right behind them, and there's a short shootout, uh, shootout uh, and they have to withdraw because too many guys are getting killed out in the open, and so they kind of fall back while the banditos, uh, led by Sancho and Dolores, end up uh, taking all the hostages. Now, uh, Sancho is very interested in getting out of the uh, situation alive rounds up all the people who work there all the servants you know the the stable the stable people the uh the servers the wait staff you know like they're not given any specific titles but you know everybody who works in the stables you know the sheep herders all that uh tells sheriff ben and they are able to yell across what seems to be like a mile of land and hear each other perfectly fine um <laughs> He tells him, he's like, either you let me go to the border or I'm going to execute two people a day, one in the morning, one at night. Here's the first one. Shoots them and sends them off on a horse, which doesn't make sense because you'd want to keep the horses for your escape. But that's what they do. (laughs) So while the house is surrounded by a posse that's led by Sheriff Ben, he fears for the safety of the hostages, including, you know, obviously the one that just got shot. But most importantly... Ruby and her father. Uh, if he he knows that if he attempts to free them by force, a lot of people are going to die, including the hostages. You know, there is a guy with them. I'm not sure what his title is or who. He, maybe he's the mayor. I don't know. But uh, he's kind of a jerk because all he cares about is getting the money back and making sure that the uh, the banditos are dead and doesn't really care about the collateral damage. And you have to wonder if Sheriff Ben would be overly concerned if it hadn't been uh, his lady friend and her dad. So he, uh, Sheriff Ben tells his, his uh, compadre, uh, Tim, I believe his name is, to go back to uh, town and get anybody who can shoot a gun, including Ringo. Uh, Ringo is interested in helping, but not for free, and as... He states several times during the film, everything he does is a matter of principle. 
so as a matter of principle, he needs 30% of the money that was stolen, which would amount to $15,000, which is a small fortune uh, you know, back in, in uh, the early 1900s. And at first, uh, Sheriff Ben is unwilling to do so, but eventually says, all right, you know, that's that's fair. The bank will get back 70% of the money, even if we give this guy 30, fine. And then Ringo says, okay, but I also want my trial to happen now. Sheriff Ben says, no, your trial will happen after you get back. And Ringo's like, no, I don't really trust you. So we're going to do it now. So the judge is there and, you know, they basically do go through like a, a, a sham trial and find, you know, uh, Ringo innocent of everything. All the charges are cleared against him. And they let him out. And Ringo refuses a gun. So he's able to uh, successfully join up with the Bandito gang, posing as a fellow outlaw. Now, lending credence to this was the fact that Dolores already saw him in the jail. You know, no one else could really go go and infiltrate the gang because Dolores had seen who the sheriff was and who all his friends were. Uh, she even killed one of them. So he is able to earn the trust of the gang by saying, hey, you know, I was in jail. I escaped. I, uh, you know, well, how'd you escape? Well, I made a deal with the sheriff, but I'm definitely double-crossing him because threw me into jail for a misunderstanding. And uh, further ingratiates himself by not bringing a gun despite the fact that he is a very talented gunfighter, and then uh, is able to remove the bullet from Sancho's shoulder. Then gives him a plan about how they're going to escape, but demands 40% of the loot, which Sancho agrees to, but only because he's planning on double-crossing Ringo. Now, Ringo has a, a plan in mind, how he's going to do this. He's going to take his time. He's going to get everything, uh, all his ducks in a row and, and, you know, make sure that they're able to, uh, you know, ensure the safety of as many people as possible. But he witnesses, uh, one of the executions and he's like, mm, boy, that isn't right. You know, and kind of, you know, uh, Ruby doesn't like the way he says that. She's like, that's all you have to say. He's like, well, what do you want me to do? Like, I don't have a gun. I can't kill everybody. Like, I'm not going to say it's good, but, you know, she's kind of frustrated by him. And there's a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of tension between, uh, Ruby and Ringo throughout the rest of the film. Uh, but not as much as, uh, Dolores and Major Clyde, uh, Major Clyde, uh, his wife had, had died many, many years ago. And, you know, he's been alone ever since, you know, while Ruby was growing up. And Dolores is a nice-looking woman, and so he is hitting on her non-stop. And, like, this dude is a smoothie. <laughs> and uh, she eventually, you know, kind of kind of falls for him. Like, she sees what a gentleman he is and how nice he is and how well he treats her compared to Sancho. and Because you know, she's supposed to be Sancho's lady, but Sancho's like a big old jerk. And, uh... You know, things things escalate. There's a there's a bunch of double crosses and triple crosses, and you really never know where Ringo's loyalties lie until the very end of the film. And I I I enjoyed this one so so much. It was uh, the the version I watched, which is probably the version you watched, was all in Italian with uh, subtitles. 
and even I could tell that this was dubbed yes in Italian uh, poorly because like it did not match up with what these people were saying right yeah <laughs> yeah like I said I think last episode they whenever they made these movies they just didn't record any sound and they they um they would dub in the the voices and sound effects afterwards now I wanted to quickly answer your question about uh, his Montgomery Wood. And I've got it here. It's a book I have called Any Gun Can Play, The Essential Guide to Euro Westerns. And it says here, now the actor who played Ringo was Giuliano Gemma, and the director was um, was Duccio Tassari. So Giuliano Gemma, the athletic young star of Sons of Thunder, gladly seized the chance to work with Tassari again, although American actor Robert Woods says that he was the first choice for the role of Ringo, not Gemma. Woods turned it down owing to a prior falling out with Alfonso Balcazar, with whom he'd previously made the popular film $5,000 on the Ace in 64. And now this is um, the American actor Robert Woods saying, Duccio Tassari came and asked me if I would do it, but I was with Alfonso, I'm sorry, but it was with Alfonso, and I said, no way. So they got Giuliano Gemma and changed his name to Montgomery Wood because of me. And then he continues to say that um, Giuliano even admits freely that if Tessari could have taken me, he probably would have. But he, Giuliano, had a huge success after that movie. So that's why he's called uh, Montgomery Wood. In I mean, film. it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, I got confused because I was, you know, doing my research to put the, uh, the summary together. I couldn't find him credited as Montgomery Wood anywhere except in, like, a couple of, like, disambiguations. Right. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So they basically just changed his name to piss off Robert Woods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, as, as you do. Yeah, this this was my first time viewing. I really enjoyed it, too. Um, I did watch it on Prime, although halfway through I got up and looked at my DVD shelf because I was pretty sure I had it on DVD, and I did, and it was actually an English dub, but the quality was, was lesser, that you know, it was widescreen, but the widescreen was smaller in the TV screen for some reason. So hmm. I just stuck with with the Prime version. I I was gonna, if I had time, I would have watched the DVD version just to see how, if there was any differences. But I didn't get a chance to do that. But I did notice I do I do speak some limited Italian, and I noticed uh, sometimes the subtitles weren't exactly saying what they were saying, but it was getting the point across. So for example. They'd, in, in the English subtitle, a character would tell another character, you're not very bright. But in Italian, it's basically saying you're stupid <laughs> or you're an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. They used idiot a lot, but they didn't use the word idiot um, in the, the dialogue track. Right. But I mean, that's going to happen. Like sometimes, you know, like we talked about with, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago about, you know, the uh, different idiomatic expressions, you know, there are things that you'd say in, in uh, English that don't translate into other languages and vice right. versa, you know, so there's, you know, there's, there's always that little bit of lost in translation. Uh, yeah. Overall, I thought the subtitling was, was well done though. Yeah. It's not like, it's, I, it's not like I was like, Oh, I don't know what's going on with this movie. I can't follow it at all. No, it was, it was pretty <laughs> spot on. Like, and if the, the words aren't exactly, you know, they don't exactly match up. It's, it's fine. 
as long as you can understand what's going on. Right, right. Now, we talked about Duccio Tessari. He both wrote and directed this film. He also directed the sequel, The Return of Ringo. Um, it was a well-known screenwriter, and he worked with the two Sergios, Sergio Leone on The Colossus of Rhodes and Sergio Corbucci on Romulus and Remus. Those were from 60 and 61. So he was, he'd was he been around for a while, and um, he knew, he kind of knew what he was doing. We'll get into it a little bit more about how he sort of changed changed um, things with this movie. But like we said, we've got Giuliano Gemma, or a.k.a. Montgomery Wood, as Ringo. And it, instead of playing a silent, serious hero who's unshaven, guzzles whiskey, and wears a poncho, Ringo is clean-shaven. He wears a suit similar to that worn by Gary Cooper in High Noon, and he drinks milk instead of whiskey. He was also in Battle of the Worlds in 61, The Return of Ringo in 65, and Day of Anger with Lee Van Cleef in 67. And he also played the detective in Dario Argento's film Tenebra. So I thought that was Ooh. cool. Yeah, that was yeah. what the second of the... Uh... Three Sisters movie. Exactly, yep. Um, what I found interesting about uh, uh, Ringo's character is he's very much an anti-hero. Right. Um, he's not, you know, he's he's dressed mostly in black. You know, he's looking out for what's best for him. Like, you don't know where his allegiances truly lie until you know, the very end of the film, like we said. Um, and, you know, he went back and forth. He's very smooth. He's very confident. You know, he, like I said, there's some tension between him and Ruby, but, you know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's not real. It's all manufactured, you know. Um, right. Like, he didn't really seem, I think he, he, he didn't seem like he was interested in her, although I don't think if she made advances on him, he would turn her away. But he yeah. seemed more like he was just sort of a, a, trying to be a sympathetic ear in his own, you know, in his own way. Well, especially because of uh, the, the was it Pedro? Oh, oh yeah, he's he was just creepy. <laughs> so, and speaking of the sheriff, who was Ruby's uh, fiance, we've got George Martin played him. And he plays it like the stereotypical Hollywood Western hero. Um, he's got 40 credits to his name, including The Return of Ringo in 65, Island of the Doomed in 67, and a movie called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from 67, which also starred Giuliano Gemma. And what I found really interesting about uh, looking into George Martin's career, he played a superhero in a couple of Italian superhero movies. I guess there was a string of them, and he was in particularly the... Th it's about these three supermen. And it's called, the two movies he was in was called Three Supermen in Tokyo and Three Supermen in the West. And I, I think I've seen one of them because they were multi, they were produced with different companies. I'm sorry, different countries collaborated and produced these movies. So there's a Turkish one that I think I have on a, on a you know, multi-pack set or something that I've seen. But I don't know if he's in that, but he's it, it definitely whacked out uh, something to be checked out because <laughs> they're just so interesting. Oh yeah, some of these uh, these uh, uh, superhero films from from other countries are absolutely bonkers. Like there's a spider, like an Indian version of Spider Man that's just yep. like insane, where he grows something like hundreds of feet tall. It's it's nuts. Oh, that's the Japanese um, one, yeah. Oh, the Japanese one. Okay, I know yeah. there's a there's an Indian one and there's a there's a Japanese one, and like 
I kind of overlap them because they're both like so bonkers and like are not even it's it's it, I don't know what superhero they're supposed he's supposed to be, but he's wearing a <laughs> Spider-Man costume. Yeah, but like does none of the things that Spider-Man can do, <laughs> and he turns giant. <laughs> but it's it's yeah, they're super fun, and then you have you know. Of course, Turkish Star Wars, which is just—I was just going to mention that. <laughs> uh, I will say this: there's a uh, there is a dub of the uh, Revenge of the Sith, and it's called Backstroke of the West, <laughs> and it, and it's you know every time I think of subtitles and how poorly dubbed things are, uh, this comes to mind. Like you know, the scene at the end where you know Vader gets up off the off the uh, the plat for the medical platform for the first time and screams "No" in that James Earl Jones voice. Right. Well, the translation didn't quite come through, and obviously it's not James Earl Jones, but it's someone saying "Do not want." <laughs> but the whole movie is like that. Like, you can almost understand, like, if you've seen the movie and you know it, like, you can understand kind of where they're going. But there's a there's a part where Obi-Wan's like, do you fuck on I? It's like, (laughs) what? Like, there's the they're in a there's at the beginning in the space battle. And it's like, what is what does that mean? What? Like, there's nothing that gives you any context for, like, what he's talking about. That's hilarious. Like, yeah, I highly recommend it. It's the entire movie. It's on YouTube. But, you know, when, like I was saying, when it comes to the, these translations, being like, oh, he said he was stupid, but in the subtitle, it's idiot. That's different, you know? But right, it's not quite as bad as going from no... Like this emotional pained no to do not want. Like <laughs> it's like the meaning is almost the same. You know, like you can make the case that that's not a terrible uh, translation, but at the same time, like you know, your reaction to it was my reaction to it. It's like <laughs> what do not want. Do not want. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I, I highly recommend checking that out. Backstreet so of the West. Is that is that dubbed? So it's dubbed into English? Yeah, he it's, says that? it's okay. dubbed and subtitled. It's called Backstroke of the West, The Third Gathers. That's hilarious. And that's an actual translated movie from a different country. It's not like some like a goof that someone made. Right, it's someone translated it into another country, but they're speaking English. Right. Oh, wow, that's weird. So, like, all the voices are dubbed over in English, <laughs> but they're dubbed over from, like, like it, someone ran it through Google Translate five or six times and then <laughs> translated it into English. So it's like, it went from, you know, French to Spanish to Korean to Japanese to Russian back to English, and this is what we came up with. But it's That's hilarious. absolutely bonkers, and it's so much fun. Just like, you know, click around to different scenes. You know, find your favorite scene. And it's just like, oh, like the emo- any emotional impact that it had gets taken right out. And I'm so, 
and it's funny because like we watch you know these these uh, these Shaw Brother films or these you know uh, uh, spaghetti westerns, and you're expecting like that's the stereotypical like I'm expecting to see like these ridiculous dubs like you'd see in like the old Godzilla movies where people are laughing and the laugh track stops, but like the people are still laughing on screen. Right. <laughs> you know, what they're saying just does not match up. It's like, do you want this? No. But like the guy's mouth continues moving for another three seconds. Like that's what you're <laughs> expecting with these movies, but they're not like that. They're so well done. I mean, granted, like we said with the Shaw brothers films, it's like you see this big burly guy and he's got like this high pitched tiny Tim voice. Like that's a little <laughs> off putting, but the 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 dubs and the subtitles are are done well. Yes, yeah. And so um, that was that was kind of like the whole point that I was. The, that movie. <laughs> no, that was awesome. I got to go and check that out now. Uh, it's going to be my new favorite. So uh, we've got an actor named Fernando Sancho that plays Sancho. And uh, he's a Spanish actor. He's been in a ton of spaghetti westerns, so we'll probably encounter him again in the future. Um, now we have Neves Navarro, who played Dolores. She's, of course, the girlfriend of Sancho at first. And she, I thought she was smoking hot. She mm-hmm. was just beautiful. And uh, she's also in The Return of Ringo, but she plays a different character. And she's also in the movie that I mentioned that George Martin was in called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And I, when I looked it up, I guess that's... Um, it's a spy spoof kind of movie, but it's mm-hmm. got a pretty much the same cast and director as this movie. So I feel like we're going to have to check that out on uh, on Then Is Now at some point because it looks really interesting. Um, but she, Neves Navarro, she's been in uh, quite a few exploitation movies, including All the Colors of the Dark in 72, Death Walks at Midnight also in 72, Black Emmanuel, White Emmanuel in 76, and Joe DeMonte, I'm sorry, Joe D'Amato's Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, also known as Trap Them and Kill Them from 1977. So she's yeah. been, she's got quite the career there. Yeah, and definitely uh, uh, a lot of different uh, different aspects of, of uh, you know, go from a spaghetti western to a cannibal horror type movie. Right. <laughs> And she was really good in this. I, I, it was funny because you didn't like her as a character at first, and then she, the more the major kind of um, softened her up, the more her character became interesting. And especially like, even though her and Ruby sort of had this sort of antagonistic relationship, I think ultimately she would have protected her. Yeah, um, and she kind of did. Like she yeah. did with the 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 Pedro thing. That's right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, she definitely had, like, this air of, like, you know, powerful, independent woman. Um, And based on her look, I kind of got, like, a Morticia Adams-type vibe. Like, if you threw Morticia Adams into a Western, Uh, that's kind of how I would describe her. Uh, Although the first thing I thought of was uh, her character being named Dolores, and the first thing I thought of was Westworld. Um, with a uh, Evan Rachel Woods character. Oh, the TV show. Also, yeah, also being named Dolores. I haven't seen that yet. It's excellent, but like that's that's the first thing I thought of because she had like a similar similar type uh, story 
on the show. Yeah. Like, you know, who her character was. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's another one that's on my list to watch is Westworld. <laughs> I've seen the movie, but I've never, I haven't yeah. watched the show yet. The Westworld and Futureworld. Those are good ones. That's right, yeah. Then we've got Antonio Casas as Major Clyde. I kind of recognized him. It took me a while until I, I had to really look it up, but he was he's also in The Return of Ringo, but he was in a bunch of spaghetti westerns. Most notably, he was in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly from 66, and that will be covered uh, on a future episode, but he was pretty good. I liked the juxtaposition of how, you know, he's being held hostage, but he's totally well-mannered and polite, and he, he it's almost like welcomes them into the home, and that throws the bad guys yeah. off. I think they they didn't weren't prepared to deal even, with that. He even says to Sancho, "It's like, oh, you're injured, so you'll be a guest. You know, you'll be treated like a guest." And it's like, yeah. And he he maintains this like I'm trying to articulate my thought here. Like he's so level headed and like just keeps this air of uh, neutrality almost, even as they're like executing yeah. his his workers which you know might be a commentary <laughs> on you know how you know his workers who all looked uh, very mexican uh right and you know he obviously was not mexican he was supposed to be playing an american but like you know th- this commentary on how you know richer americans viewed both women and uh, and Mexicans at the time, you know. Cause, I mean, he didn't seem overly concerned for his. No, staff. it was just he's probably thinking, oh well, you know, I can I can get more, you know, I'll get more workers, right? And it's it's <laughs> it's definitely a, a contrast to like it, it seems to him that it seems to me that the only thing that he cares about is you know getting Dolores and you know, it's like, he's unconcerned about anything else. Like these guys are shooting, you know, firing guns off in his living room and, and, you know, you know, smashing all his plates and his dishes and stuff. And like, they're dancing on the table, wrecking everything. And it's just like, Ooh, take this. This is the good brandy. Like, right. (laughs) And like, not not the reaction I was expecting out of his character. No, and even, even when they're like, oh, you know, Ringo, drink all this whiskey, and they pour it into, like, what looks like some sort of trophy for horse racing, uh, but it's probably, right. like, a fancy spittoon, and he just, like, pours it out onto the rug, and it's like, this isn't, like, this is, like, the early 1900s. Like, you can't just, like, oh, I spilled something on my rug. Well, I guess I'll just, you know, you know, you know, have someone ship me another one from, you know, wherever. And it's like, no, like you, you know, like your neighbors are 12 miles away. Like we see this like right. farmhouse and there's nothing but like desert and desert. like in every yeah. direction. Like they have to ride on a horse for like an hour in order to get there from the closest town. Right. Like, there's not even any train tracks. There's nothing there. It's like, yes, yes, please ruin everything that I own. Ha <laughs> ha. My gun is hidden in the right. chain. And you knew the gun was coming back into play. Yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Oh my god, that was so funny, and that that whole scene with the trophy was hilarious too, which we'll we'll get to in a little bit. But so we've got Lorella DeLuca, and she's credited as Hallie Hammond here, which I don't know why, uh, as Miss Ruby. She was also in the Return of Ringo and in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So, like I said, we're gonna have to cover that on on our other show. Then finally, we've got Jose Manuel Martin, who played Pedro, one of the scummiest of uh, the scumbags bandits. He's the lieutenant to Sancho. He was in quite a few movies. He's also in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and he's in uh, Django Shoots First in 66, God Forgives I Don't in 67, 100 Rifles in 69, which is a, that's a really good movie, Count Dracula's Great Love in 73 with Paul Nashi, and The Castle of Fu Manchu with Christopher Lee in 69, as well as one that I happen to catch, uh, recently called a uh, dog called vengeance in 77 that's an interesting movie because it's on this multi-pack of exploitation films that i have and i just randomly threw one in and it's got jason miller who plays the young priest in the exorcist mm-hmm. and he's basically pursued by this killer dog through the whole movie <laughs> but it it somehow works i just i thought it was really enjoyable yeah so that's our cast. Yeah, I was going to say, they, this is a great cast. Um, I think they did a, a really good job, uh, especially with, you know, the way they uh, the way they portrayed Miss Ruby. I, I think she was, uh, they had her with this look of, oh, I'm a damsel in distress. Oh, but... Right. Yeah, like, see, no, I was confusing her when I said uh, Westworld earlier. Because the character that she reminds me of is named Dolores, you know, Evan Rachel, when she's this blonde that seems to be like, oh, my dad's a really important guy, and my my intended oh. is, like, also, like, a, a lawman. You know, I live in this really nice ranch. Right. You know, she's got that, you know, you know country girl type aesthetic but deep down she's a badass like and you see that like the first thing she does is go and get a gun and see that's the other thing that kind of right. threw me off when <laughs> you know later in the film when we're like Ringo's like oh if only I could have a gun and like they're as they're talking there's a rifle hung above like the the, the, the <laughs> like little archway and there's like six pistols hanging on a wall like they confiscated all the guns it's like what are those then like there's seven guns I, I right there. Too. Like maybe they're old, <laughs> but they're absolutely guns. Right. <laughs> like that. I was like, like maybe this is lost. Maybe they they mentioned something in the in the Italian about the guns being like deactivated or, or you know missing pieces or something, and that's why they're just you know display pieces. But it's like there's. Or they just didn't, simply didn't have ammo for it, too. Yeah, but, I mean, you, you can find ammo. I mean, I don't know. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I did notice that as well. I was like, uh, okay, well, I guess we'll just have to go with it. Um, but what's interesting is this movie was not only inspired by Lorne Green's song, Ringo, which was released in 64, but also the real Johnny Ringo, who was involved in a long-running dispute with the Earp family, and he may have been involved in the gunfight at the OK Corral. 
And we saw in previous movies, um, in the movie The Gunfight at the OK Corral from 57, John Ireland played Johnny Ringo, and Michael Bean played him in Tombstone in 1993. So the character of Ringo, who's based on a real person, has been around, but this, um, like I said, the Lorne Green made a song singing just about Ringo, had nothing to do with Bonanza. So I, th- I guess they just kind of got the idea, hey, this Ringo guy's pretty cool, we need, you need to uh, do a movie about him. But it, he's nothing like the real person in this movie. <laughs> you know, he, he he plays hopscotch. Like I said, he plays hopscotch. He drinks milk. <laughs> yeah, he's like a a child almost. And it's like, oh, let's play a game, kids. And then he shoots four guys in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's very much like a kid in this. But then, yeah, he's dangerous too, which is cool. And I thought it was interesting. That, I thought the title... When I walked into it, I was kind of wondering what the title meant. And it, it's one of those things where if he had only had a pistol he at the beginning with Sancho and his gang, he could have easily just taken them all down, you know, right away. I think he knew going into it, though, that there was too many. So the whole thing it really does revolve around the title, which is the pistol for Ringo. It says ultimately he finally gets the pistol at the end of the movie. Yeah. It's like, well, with a name like that, he's got to get a gun at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I love when he gets arrested for for gunning down the Benson gang and he walks into the jail cell and there's a dude lying in the bed and he just flips the bed over and knocks the guy out of the bed. He's like, hey, you mind if I sit there? And the guy's like, I don't know whatever happened to that guy because he's never there after that. Like, he's just gone. Yeah, it was, again, like just a funny scene. They they just probably, oh, forgot about him afterwards. (laughs) Or maybe he fell fell through a trap door. Yeah, probably. I mean, that's most likely what it was. Like, they executed him, like, he opened up the trap door and he fell, and there was some poison needles there. Right. <laughs> oh, man. So, I know you haven't seen the movie Django yet, but Django's got a really great theme song, and I didn't really care for the uh, Ringo's theme song. I guess it was a hit in Italy, but... Uh... Yeah, I just, it didn't... <laughs> It was not a good theme. No. I was like, all right, this is my least favorite part of this movie is the theme song. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was It was not, uh, it was not good. It, mainly because of how often they repeated the line, Angel Face. It's like, it's like, oh, he's the deadliest gunslinger in the West. What's his name? Angel Face. It's like, oh. <laughs> He's the deadliest draw since cutie pants. <laughs> Come up with a, like, you know, like, like, who who's riding into town? Oh, it's Black Bart and his gang. Like, that's, you know, or like, oh, they call him the, the rattlesnake. Like, right. You know, <laughs> oh, it's good old rainbow shoes. Like, like that's not scary. Like, Twinkle toes. <laughs> angel face. It's like something you'd call it a, a, a child. Like, oh, it's going to be all right, Angel Face. Right, right. <laughs> I'm here to rob your bank. What's your name? Honey Muffin. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And it's kind of it's kind of sad because Ennio Morricone made that song. And his score was good, but that song was just not good. <laughs> no, the song was not. No, the score was good. Like, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't speak to... You know, watching a ton of westerns because I think this is like the third one that I, the third one that I've seen. Yeah, or fourth if you want to count like 
Hateful Eight and Django Unchained. Right. So I guess four or five. Um, but the themes have always been good. You know, it's the same, except for that weird like flute, like whatever that wi- that wind instrument is. Every time, like they say Angel Face, and it's like those three <laughs> or four notes. It's like, what is that? Right. <laughs> I think on the director's part, that was intentional comedy. I think, you know, by doing that with the music and the, the whole angel face thing. Because one of the things he does with this movie is he really, like I said before, he tur- he turns the, tib- the tables on this and makes this more ironic than uh, what we're expecting. You know, we're walking in expecting a certain kind of a Western movie because we've already seen, you know, the ones that came before it and it's it doesn't do quite that thing quite what the others did, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, he's definitely an anti-hero and like the sheriff is almost played off as like a bad guy. And like, you don't want to root for him because he's kind of like just a bland dick. Right. There's nothing you know, like usually in these types of movies, like the sheriff is like the main guy and you're kind of rooting for him. But like this guy is just, he's so generic. He's so paint by numbers. Like he doesn't even have a unique look to him. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to that guy, uh, Tim, I think his name is. I've said that like six times. The kid with the glasses that was playing cards. Right. Yeah. I don't know what, what his name was. Um, but like, like he stood out more as a character than, you know, the sheriff, like the sheriff might as well have been like a cardboard cutout or like, yeah. You know, like, Oh, which horse was your favorite? Oh, I don't know. The sheriff. Right. You know, and Tassari was, was, um, he was known for using Hollywood Western cliches in his movies, but he sort of had this ability to just kind of, integrate what seemed like incompatible ingredients and shove them together into a movie and, and make it work. And, you know, I think that kind of proves that he wasn't just a um, Sergio Leone imitator and, you know, that there were other directors out there that could do a solid spaghetti Western, you know? Right. And this is a, this is a solid uh, subversion of expectations. You know, I know that's something that, you know, that's a term that gets thrown around, thrown around a lot over the last few years, but you know, generally you go into it thinking like, okay, the sheriff, like that's his girl. Like, Oh, the sheriff's girl, the sheriff's going to do something. And it's just like, no, like the sheriff wasn't even (laughs) remotely the main focus. Right. It was, you know, obviously the guy whose name is in the title, but you know, the, the back and forth between him and, and Sancho and him and Ruby, um, I thought those those characters were uh, were really done well, and then you think you know you, you're thinking that oh man, he only cares about himself; he doesn't care about anybody else. But then you see the scene with Chico at the end, right? Which I thought was excellent. Yeah, yeah, those were now, done. the other the other thing that kind of threw me off, and it never got resolved. Like they never went back to it. Was when the they're getting away. The people at the end are getting away, all the hostages. And there was a nice payoff to an earlier scene where uh, Ruby 
puts the the reins, the horse reins, on like a post next to her in the, the front of the uh, wagon. Yeah. Picks up a gun and shoots the bandito. Right. But like when they show her again, she goes to reach for the reins, but they're not there, and she has this look of like fear on her face, like oh no, how am I going to control the horses? And then nothing ever comes of that. Right. Like, they don't. I'm like, oh, how is she going to get the reins? Like, is they going to show her, like, reaching down and, like, just being able to, you know, grab it or, like, what? And they never, they just show them riding away, apparently not needing the reins. The horses know where to go. Well, I think um, that the, the the firecrackers spooked the horses. So I don't think she was very No, no, much I'm talking co- about after that. Right. After that. I don't think she was very much in control of the wagon, though. And it wasn't until the sheriff came up that and, and pulled, you know, stopped the horses that he was able to stop. Because the wagon was just, they, the horses were just running. Right. But she had the reins in her hand. And then she put them, like, on a little post. Yeah. So she could, you know grabbed the gun and then she went back to grab them they were gone and she was like oh the reins are gone like so she could at least you know now that the horses are far enough away like you know pull up on the reins and kind of slow them down but right i mean know, who knows maybe that when but, she shot the guy maybe that spooked the horses further i mean it couldn't have helped yeah but i just it was just weird to me that they never resolved the thing with the reins and the horses just kept running in a straight line like, all right, one of those things doesn't work. Right. <laughs> Either she found the reins and she was able to to, uh, to hang on to them or I don't know. That just, you know, it was one of those, it didn't factor into the plot really. So it wasn't a huge deal. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because they would have had to have, if she, yeah, she ties off the reins, but then they would have had to have had them fall off so that she wouldn't have control of the wagon for the sh- so the sheriff could save her in terms of the story. Right. So just I wanted to touch on Ringo again, too, because I, lo- I love his childlike demeanor. I mean, he's got this, this casual disregard for danger, you know, just like kids do. And, and one of the things I found in my research that uh, drinking the milk instead of whiskey, that goes back to a film called Destry Rides Again from 1939, and it's throughout you know cinematic history, it's been the preferred beverage of ironic Western heroes, which I thought was interesting. And he, he's definitely you know, self-centered. Uh, he's, on, he's all about self-preservation and the accumulation of wealth. I mean, he even says at one point that he'll often switch sides like his father did in the Civil War because the odds were in favor of the North. It's just a matter of principle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he he brought that up many many times the the whole matter of principle thing. Yeah. Although I think you know with the way that you know westerns tended to go in in that in that time, you know that was kind of brought up as like a red herring to just just to make you think that he was gonna double cross uh, Sheriff Ben, but you know most of these things have a happy ending. Right. But not always, as we're starting to learn. <laughs> No, no, not not always, but you know, there's you know, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, especially th- just the way this movie. Good guy ended. wins right off into the sunset. Yeah, he took his thirty percent. That was so cool. But yeah, I want to know when he had the chance to do that and where he put it because it just looked like him on that horse. I didn't see any saddlebags. Or, right, right. I don't think his pockets were big enough to fit fifteen grand in. 
<laughs> Maybe put it under his hat. <laughs> yeah, that's probably where it would go. <laughs> but he's hilarious, though, too. Like, well, first of all, I like the, the part where they, um, he's like, yeah, all right, I'm getting 30% of the money, but I also want to be exonerated of these, you know, murder charges here. So they do this quickie trial. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> The judge is like, blah, 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 like wicked fast going through it. And then, okay, you're, you're clear. <laughs> I was like, all right, yeah, because the sheriff Ben's like, we'll try, we'll try you after. And he's like, no, you won't. Like, nope, nope, I'm not going to do everything for you. And then you find me guilty of murder. Right. <laughs> like, I'm not going to put myself in harm's way just for you to, like, screw me over. Nope, you're going to do it now. <laughs> and we all know how it's going to end up. Yeah. <laughs> But he's just so, and it, like that was a hilarious scene, which I did not expect it to be like that. And, they, and they're these very serious characters doing that. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I thought that was great. And when when Ringo first goes to the um, the ranch there, and he's talking to Sancho, and he lights up a cigarette for Dolores, and he's kind of captivated by her because he doesn't notice that the match is still on fire until it burns down to his hand. He's like, "Ooh, ah." <laughs> <laughs> So he's got this interesting, uh, whimsical demeanor. I think. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely he's fun. Like he's not um, he's not like really like stuck up and, and like hoity toity. He's just like you know, kind of just playing along. And like he knows that he's smarter than everybody else in the room, or not maybe not smarter, but more clever. Yeah, more cunning. You know, like when they're. Uh, you know, talking about getting the, uh, when he first meets the gang and he just kind of like strolls past everybody. He's like, Oh, you can't shoot me. It wouldn't be fair. Right. Like, and he just like walks right by him, goes right up to, to Sancho. Like guys are pulling guns on him and he's like, Oh, let me see your wound. Oh, this will be gangrenous. <laughs> like, Oh, I operated on horses. It's like, yeah. I'm not a horse. I'm not a surgeon. So <laughs> Like that's so great, and he's getting like all the whiskey, um, and uh, you know they're they're clearing up. They were very I I was surprised when they're like, oh, we have to put him in here and lay him on a table. They were like very nice about moving the stuff and right. they carefully placed it in other, as opposed to just like yanking everything off the off the table and like having it fly everywhere, right, destroying everything. Um, yeah. Then there's. Uh, but I love when he's he's bringing Sancho in, and he goes. Ringo says, "Make way for the invalid." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that was a uh, a fun line that they used. That you know, again, probably is one of those things that uh, probably means something different in Italian than it does in English. Right? It's like he did use the Italian word for it. Right. Then, uh, you know, when he's trying to do the, the actual surgery, he's like, you have to take your gun off. He's like, I never take my gun off. And he's like, well, you're going to take it off now. He's like, I'll shoot you. He's like, go ahead. And then you'll lose your arm and die. Yeah. <laughs> so he takes the gun off. Then he pours the, the whiskey onto the, the bullet wound. And Sancho freaks out. He goes, see, if you had your gun right now, you would have shot me. Yeah. Oh, That's man. why you're not allowed to have nice things, right? <laughs> and then, but then Sancho decides he wants Ringo as his personal doctor, which I thought was funny. Yes. <laughs> so again, you know, like I brought up in, in the uh, 
the the opening there. He has a bullet in his left shoulder. Right. But somehow we see him later when he's shaving and he shoot he uses his mirror to shoot somebody behind him, which is kind of a dick move. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's shaving and there is a hole in his jacket, a bullet hole where he got shot and right. it's got blood on it. And it's like, if Ringo dug the bullet out, what is that all about? Right. Why is there an exit wound? It wouldn't have gone through if it went right through. Like that's a different, that's a different procedure altogether. Yeah. It's yeah. So that didn't make that, much sense. To me, little inconsistent, but yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Well, I love the scene though. After he um he patches up Sancho, where the the guys try to get Ringo to drink. And he refuses, and he humiliates the guy by beating him with the trophy cup. <laughs> yeah, that was well, whatever yeah, it was. Ahead. Spittoon. Reach, reach for the, uh, reach for the. I mean, it looked like a trophy. Yeah. He's like, go ahead, reach for your gun, and he crushed his hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, because that was just so cool. Like how he just was so dangerous, even without his pistol. You know, and he just, yeah, he reminded me of um, High Toe in The Kid with the Golden Arm. And not that it with the drinking, but just the the way he waded through scenes, knowing full well what he was going to do, how he was going to get out of it. And just with mm-hmm. the, the confidence that both characters had. I thought there was a, a parallel there. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. Like They definitely both had these uh, these this air of confidence and no matter what the situation is i'll get out of it you know even though i might be outnumbered or outgunned uh, i can talk my way out of it uh, he's not a he's not an overly great hand-to-hand fighter i mean that fight scene went on forever yeah with, with uh pedro there like that went on forever oh and, towards the end yeah yeah, and I'm I'm a hundred percent convinced that most of these fight scenes at the end of uh, at the end of westerns are just to see like how much stuff they can wreck and how many things they can smash through. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> I mean, that's all they did was just wreck wreck everything, and it was it was fun. It was an entertaining fight scene, but it's like, oof! Like just once, I would love to see. Uh, a guy like that, you know, it's like, oh, I, I don't have a gun, but I'm also trained, you know, I'm a trained martial artist, and, you know, his opponent's just like, put up your dukes, I'm gonna give you a knuckle sandwich, and, like, the <laughs> dude just, like, busts out, like, praying mantis kung fu and just kicks the shit out of him. <laughs> like, I guess they kind of did that in, like, Shanghai Noon. Yep. I haven't seen, I haven't seen those. Oh, those are but, good. like, it's a... It's a you know a western with Jackie Chan, so obviously he like, you know, is able to use martial arts against like, oh, normally I use a gun, so right. I don't know how to fight because <laughs> I use a gun. Yeah, no, those movies are very good, and also, um, well, uh, we covered in uh, episode one, Stranger and the Gunfighter, so you should definitely check that one out because um, it's a it's a teaming up of the Shaw brothers and Lee Van Cleef 
in a western and it oh interesting yeah it's really good and it's funny too it's, I, I heard of one that's supposed to be a similar type of thing but it's like Shaw Brothers meets uh the Hammer Dracula yes. films where it's Legend of the Seven Golden vampires. vampires yep seven yes yeah that's that's one I want to cover on this show too because that's just the ultimate combination of Hammer and and the Shaw Brothers. One one of the scenes that I thought was hilarious too was Ringo basically says to Sancho that he wants forty percent of the money. He's already laid out the plan. He's told him, which at first I was like thinking he was stupid for doing it, but he told him the whole thing about the the plan he made with the sheriff or the deal he made with the sheriff. And he tells that to Sancho and then says, you know, but I'll do it. I'll help you if you give me forty percent and. Yeah, I'll give you till tomorrow to think about it. And he leaves the room, and Sancho and his men are, you know, deciding it. And Sancho's like, "Ah, oh, we'll just kill him afterwards." And then Ringo pops his head back in, and he goes, "Yeah, you shouldn't plan to kill me afterwards." <laughs> yeah, like it. It definitely has uh, shades of uh, the last movie, where it's like, "Oh, I guess I can retire." Oh no! Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but those those bad guys were just so nasty. It was just. It was funny to watch the major just be so cultured and refined, you know, and in the face of these bad guys where they just, you know, picking their nose and wiping it on the curtains. And <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely very, uh, like, sophisticated British aristocrat. Yeah, you know, calm under the face of danger, you know, pressure. Just... Oh my, how uncivilized. Here, have a skew. Yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> Oh, and then they're having dinner, and Ringo kind of, you know, backs uh, Pedro off of Ruby again because he's he's trying to get her, and he gets Ruby to sit down, and Ringo, I mean, um, Pedro whips a knife at him, and it hits the chicken, and (laughs) Ringo just takes the knife and uses that to carve up the chicken and serve it to Ruby. (laughs) Yeah, like that. That's funny. I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah, but and then you know, Pedro starts to move in on him like he's going to fight him, and then the major comes in. And he he manages to calm everybody down by playing his gramophone that he got from his friend Mr. Edison, which I thought was a nice little touch. Yeah, but he said Mr. Edison from Boston. Right. Edison was from New Jersey. Oh. Well, maybe he traveled to Boston one day and gave him a gramophone. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yes. Door to door gramophones. Yeah. From New Jersey to Boston. Gramophone grams. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was cool how Ringo kept intervening with Pedro, because you knew sooner or later she was going to get raped, and it was just yeah. he, especially when you know Ringo is not there when he's out setting the the dynamite or whatever. You know that the, the what's his name Pedro just kind of took advantage of that. Yeah, like he or he he did his best, anyways. Then that kid, I was like, oh man, this kid's going to pull a. Uh, uh, Friday the 13th and Amy <laughs> Steele and kill him with the, the pitchfork. Yeah. Which I thought the kid had the knife from the apple scene. Because remember he picked, they made a point of showing him pick it up off the floor, the apple with the knife in it, and he took the knife. So I thought he would have had it. And that's what he would have used. Yeah. And the guy thought there was going to be some kind of callback to that, like a Chekhov's gun type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then... <laughs> That's the scene where the sheriff is, you know, not too far away from the house, and he snipes a couple of the guys through the one through the window, I think, and one was on the roof. <laughs> and there's another guy standing out there. Ringo leans out and goes, 
He sees what happened. He goes, oh, getting up early is bad for your health. <laughs> yeah, I was just, like, that was a good line. <laughs> like, what? I slept in. It's like, oh, you're such a dick. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. And then he, at one point he says to Ruby that he feels naked without his pistol, and you wouldn't want a naked man in the house. <laughs> and she goes, no. Yeah, you don't want a naked guy walking around in the house. <laughs> yeah. She's just like, no. <laughs> Another funny scene, too. I mean, this movie was, was chock full of them, but it wasn't an outright comedy. But where Sancho's sitting at the table with his buddies, and he calls for Dolores, and she's not answering. And then one of the guys says, oh, she's probably too busy listening to the major sweet nothings. He grabs a bottle and hits him over the head with it. <laughs> just, yeah, just smashes it right in his face. For no reason. Well, I mean, for obvious reason, but... It's just a little harsh, you know. At least a, a biff up the side of the head would have been would would have sufficed. Yeah, like a, a smack upside the head. Well, I mean, he didn't shoot him in the face, like right. so. I guess, <laughs> I, I guess that was okay. And I love the scene. I think I think the humor in this film. It just dawned on me the humor in this film works because it's natural. It's like humor you would have in real life. For example, the scene where. Ringo's laying out the plan of what they're going to do on the table, and okay, the bowl of fruit represents the farm, and this apple represents the mill, and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And one of the bad guys sticks his knife, like that we had just mentioned, in the apple because he's going to eat it, and Ringo grabs it and goes, hands off my mill. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was, yeah. it was great humor without resorting to slapstick comedy, you know? Right, you know, and again, there was enough... There was enough of the, the, the common tropes like I discussed earlier, you know, you know, guy gets shot, holds his chest or his stomach and, you know, tumbles off a roof. Yeah. Another guy falls through the, uh, you know, through the railing. Another guy falls down the stairs. Like there's all that. But there's also, you know, like the, uh, you know, like we said, the subversion of expectations with, you know, who Ringo was. And like, you know, you legitimately were like, is this guy really like. I think when I finally realized, like, what he was doing, like, and, he, you know, what side he was on, yeah, was towards the end when, like, they've got him all tied up because they gave the wrong signal, and they start, like, just beating the shit out of him. Right. And he's like, he's like, all right, well, you can kill me, but you're not. You're going to give me 60%. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, it's like, what? <laughs> I love how he was able to talk his way into into and out of things. Yeah. And as soon as he was like untied, he like like did that great three punch combo to the guy that was beaten up. He's like, I don't like being beat up when I can't fight back. Yeah. It's a matter of principle. <laughs> and one scene that I, I thought was hilarious for for no reason too, because the Major and Dolores come down to dinner, and they're all gussied up, and they sit at the table, and Sancho's sitting across from Dolores, and he just, like, rips this brooch right off her dress, and the Major demands that he give, a, give it back to her, so Sancho punches him, knocks him on his ass, and then, and then he turns, and there's a servant just standing there, minding his own business, just holding a plate of food, and Sancho grabs the plate and shoves it in the servant's face. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> well, when they're all sitting around for uh, Christmas dinner, and... He's like grabbing everything with his bare hands, like, oh, you want some chicken? And he like just plops yeah. it on her plate. Yeah. <laughs> that was so gross. It's like, oh, what is, like <sighs> that's gross. <laughs> now did you notice there was one oh first of I keep forgetting to mention this. Didn't you think in certain at certain camera angles that um 
Gemma Ringo looked like James Franco? A little bit. Like, that might have been intentional. You know, Ringo, Django, like... No, no, no. Yeah, but no, uh, not... Uh, James Franco, not Franco Nero. Right. (laughs) You confused me for a second there. Yeah, I confused myself. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah, I could kind of see it. Yeah. Um, And if you haven't, you know, again, that's another uh, good Western, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, I have not seen that. Oh, it's a it's an anthology, and it's it's amazing. Uh, James Franco is in it, and he has one of the funniest lines uh, in a movie that I've seen this year. And I've seen almost three hundred and sixty movies this year. So, wow. Um, yeah, go do yourself a favor, especially if you like what. There's a uh, Tom Waits is in one. Um, uh, then uh, oh, I can never remember his name. He's got like three names. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson is in the opening one, and it's it's bonkers and bizarre, and the whole thing is just awesome. It's it's so good. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I just wrote that down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, so good. I, I think I saw that in passing. Is it on like Netflix or Prime? Uh, it's probably on Netflix. Yeah, um, I think it was Netflix. I'll have to check that out. But there was one scene um, that I thought was... I don't know if this was a blooper or what. I don't. Know if, I want to know if you noticed this, too. So Sancho and his, his guys are sitting outside at night. And I swear they were shooting day for night because one of the guys just throws his bottle up in the air and Sancho shoots it. And I was thinking, well, if mm-hmm. it was really at like 10 o'clock at night like it was supposed to be, you he wouldn't be able to see the bottle very well. Yeah, it was definitely like the middle of the afternoon. Yeah, like it was absolutely not nighttime at all. Yeah, and they just did day unless for night. they were in Alaska. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely and thinking Buster they would Scruggs do day for night. Netflix. Did we say that again? Uh, Buster Scruggs is on Netflix. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Um. So then we have, and, and for folks listening too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So then we have, uh, of course, Pedro tries to rape Ruby because now Franco's off. I'm Franco. Ringo's off. <laughs> Got James Franco in the brain now. Ringo's off setting up the dynamite, and, uh, you know, he's got his whole little plan here going on. That, like we said, the little kid distracts the Pedro, and he doesn't actually stab him with the pitchfork. Like you said, I thought he was go- was going to go all uh, Tommy. He and... just, like, jabs it into his ass. Yeah. Like, enough to distract him. Right. And now this scene coming up was really good because Ringo arrives in time and he stops it and and, uh, Pedro's just pissed and he's like, this is it, we're going to fight. And Ringo looks at him and he basically says, I'm going to kill you and Sancho's going to watch. And he does exactly that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He calls Sancho over and he's like, well, this guy's an idiot. I think he, he needs to be beaten up. And Sancho's like, okay, go ahead. And finally... All right, but no guns. Yeah. So finally, Ringo kills Sancho with his own knife, and he goes, oh, this is your knife. I forgot I dropped it. <laughs> yeah, didn't you recognize it? Which is the knife from the apple. So I, I maybe yes. the kid gave it back to Frank, uh, Ringo. <laughs> yeah, and definitely, uh, you know, and he, he pulled he pulled the same line from the beginning. It was like, it was self-defense. You all saw it. Right, yep. I have witnesses. Yeah. 
So I misspoke too. He didn't give it back to Ringo. He just gave, I would imagine he just gave it to him, obviously, because it was Pedro's knife to begin with. Yeah. So yeah, so then we've got the whole scene where he gets beat up because I didn't quite understand, I didn't quite understand the whole thing about the signal and like they were doing it three times, which the light was very dim to begin with. I don't even know how they could see that from a distance, but they would do the the signal three times, but then Sancho says, "Well, we're going to do it six times this this next one." And what's his? I didn't understand that. I I didn't. What difference would that so have they made? Wouldn't, so then, then uh, my guess is it's slightly different. So it's something that. Uh, well, I think he just told them that he told them six times to see if he was going to double cross them, which. He did right. Um, he probably told the other guy, you know, maybe do it four times, or do it three times, but do it like two quick ones and wait a second, and then the third one, like so it's still three times, so it won't, you know, arouse suspicion on the other side. Like you're still giving the same signal that they're expecting to see, you know, but do it slightly different so we know it's you. I guess I just didn't understand what the signals meant. It, I, I mean, I don't know what the signals were supposed to be, but you know, because they'd been make they'd been doing the signals the whole time, They're basically just like, "Hey, we're still here. You know, we haven't we haven't gone anywhere yet. We're just right. You know, we're but we're okay. Like we haven't seen anything. Uh, like they haven't tried to escape, and no one's come to get us." They should have just like texted just them. Doing... They should have. It would have been way easier. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was odd. And like you said, he tells the sheriff, do it six times. But I still, I don't know. There's still some confusion there because then, because who signaled first? It was, was it the sheriff signaling first or the bad guys? It was the sheriff, right? He signaled the six times. Yeah, I think it was the sheriff. I'm trying to remember. I think I think so. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, uh, harping on a plot point that's not really very necessary. But it just I didn't quite get the whole signal thing. And like you said, it's probably just hey, we're here kind of thing. And then, but I still didn't understand what difference it made if you signaled four times or six times. It you know. All right. Anyways, let's move on from that. Uh, the, the, so Ringo talks his way once again out of uh, being beat up and he ends up with 60% of the money. <laughs> yeah. And then he ends up going up to 60%. <laughs> like, oh. so like, damn it. <laughs> Every time I open my mouth, I lose money. So then, of course, we get into the end fight where the horses and the wagon go off and the sheriff shoots the dynamite that Ringo planted to block the, uh, to stop the bad guys from chasing or getting away and chasing after uh, Ruby and them. And then, so they come back and Ringo's only got two bullets. So he's fighting, he's, you know, trying to fight without using his gun and he's on the roof. And I thought it was cool because uh, there's a bad guy on the roof and Ringo jumps on him and they crash through the skylight and the bad guy hits the floor and Ringo lands on his feet on the piano. And it just, it was a very cool, almost superhero like, uh, pose yeah they they kind of um you know set that up a little bit because they had been making showing him like do these like 
crazy, ridiculous athletic feats throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire runtime. Yeah, like you know, jumping over a wall here very easily. You know, balancing. You know, walking along this other you know wall and um, yeah, they definitely were were trying to uh, you know set it up where make it believable that this guy could uh, tackle someone through a skylight and land on his feet on a piano. Yeah, absolutely. That because was... I mean, yeah, as you do, right. <laughs> That was just such a cool shot. I love the way it was framed. I love the way he landed. And it was him. It wasn't a stuntman, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, there there were uh, some great uh some great stunt shots in some of these uh in some of these westerns that, that we've been watching. So Right. I I dig it. And then of course uh Dolores got stabbed and I was like, No not want <laughs> Yeah, do not want. Do not want. <laughs> and then, of course, we finally end with Ringo. What's his name? Uh, the major tosses Ringo an antique gun, which happened to be loaded, and he ricochets the bullet off, killing San- Sancho. Which was cool. The way he sort of had it calculated out before he he took the shot. It was almost like he was setting up a pool shot. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of ricocheting a bullet off of. If it was like a big church bell, I could see it. That's true. But that little tiny bell that probably weighs what a few ounces. Right. Yeah, it would. It would move and alter the trajectory of the bullet. So. Yeah, the bullet would you know, just go right through. I thought it was funny, just kind of jumping around here, I thought um, when um, the sheriff at the beginning tells Ringo to try try using compassion, he calls him as sentimental as a schoolgirl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, uh... again, he didn't want anybody to know who uh, who he... Like, where his loyalties lie. Right, right. But he does prove that the only way to defeat Sancho was with cunning and brute force. You know, compassion wasn't going wasn't gonna to cut it. Yeah, he figured that out you know, early on. And I like how he twisted the proverb. He says, uh, Ringo says, God created men equal. The six-gun made him different. And the original proverb is, God created man, but it was Sam Colt's revolver that made him equal. So it was kind of a nice yeah, little take has... on that. He just said the Colt. Yeah. But it's, again, it could be lost in translation. So it's it's close enough. Right. Like, you knew what he meant. Um, even though, like, again, it wasn't it wasn't exact, but eh, it's close enough. So, yeah. And it got the point across. It wasn't <laughs> like, oh, God created man. Colts make men different. Like, or like, you know, something, you know. Baby horses make men different. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> do want. Do, <laughs> do, do not want. There was a point in, in real life where Gemma, the actor who played Ringo, was talking about um, Sergio Leone and Tassari's directing styles. And he's quoted as saying that they both combined violence with irony, but Leone accentuated the violence... And Tessari accentuated the irony. And I think we got a lot of that here in this movie. 
Um, very well done. Very different from what we've seen so far in terms of, you know, just the character. Even though he's still an anti-hero, he's still, you know, we, his loyalties are in question. But it, there's just so much more about this film that's different in terms of the, the humor and the irony, as, as we pointed out. So what are your final thoughts on Pistol for Ringo, Pat? Um, I definitely enjoyed this. I thought the characters were a lot of fun. Uh, the fact that it was in Italian and uh, subtitled made no difference to me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. Uh, I enjoyed uh, you know, the, the way the plot unfurled. Um, you know, kept you guessing. Like it was done really well. It wasn't like, oh, this movie was made. You know, sixty years ago. Yeah, I'll be able to guess how how it ends. And it's like, no, you you don't know how it ends. Like, right. It, it's twisting and turning, and I think that um, absolutely gives it a uh, you know a rewatchability, and you know shows you how good of a film it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I may go and watch the DVD English dub at some point this week just to just to check it out and see if what the differences are but i like i just love the fact that this movie well you know not only just well acted and well shot and everything and the music of course was Marconi, so that was great but it it was at the point where these movies were starting to set up the rules for the genre but it was also breaking the rules as well and i guess that's where the irony therein lies you know i i really enjoyed this movie immensely and i highly recommend it to you the listener to check it out, like we said, both both <laughs> both films are on Prime. And um, Patsy, why don't you tell the folks where they can find you online? Uh, best place to find me is uh, at throwdownthursdaypodcast.com. That's got links to all the social media. And uh, you know, every time I write a new article, it goes up there. I just wrote one recently about uh, what makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie and whether or not you can consider Die Hard a Christmas movie. and uh, <laughs> I know that's a touchy subject this time of year, but uh, I think I make some valid points, and uh, I think you might agree with the uh, overall uh, tone of the article. Um, you can also find me every Thursday on, uh, on Spotify and wherever fine podcasts are found. Uh, you can find me on the Throwdown Thursday podcast with my wife, uh, Ashes My Nightmare. You can find me every Friday on both YouTube and Spotify for the loudest sports show that I do with my brothers every Monday uh, for the Indie Creator Spotlight. And uh, you can also uh, find me on Amazon. I have multiple books up there. How Much Do You Tip an Exorcist, VHS Nightmares, and More Lore from the Mythos Volume 1 and 2. Those last three are all anthologies. So it's me and a bunch of other folks that are uh, part of that. But uh, help us out, get some, uh, buy some books, get some good reading material, and uh, support a bunch of local authors. Excellent, excellent. And we'll definitely have to have you on over at uh, Then Is Now Again so we can talk uh, in depth about your books and promote them. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. That'd be great. And one thing I did want to say before we close is that in my household, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And every year, uh, my son Spencer and I will watch a double feature of Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, which we both consider to be Christmas movies. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can read my article and see what I think. Yeah. I don't consider them Christmas movies, but there's a reason why I don't consider them Christmas okay. movies. So. All right. Yeah, I will definitely check that out. So, 
That's all the time we have for today's episode of The East Meets the West. We hope you learned more about Spaghetti Westerns and Shaw Brothers films in this episode. If you want to let us know your thoughts on the show, email us at theeastmeetsthewest42 at gmail.com. The East Meets the West can be found on all the all of your favorite podcasting services, including iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also visit our website at havenpodcast.com and check out our sister show, Then Is Now Podcast, where we teach you about all the cool stuff you may have missed out on as well as other fun stuff. Join us again next time. Countries that know me the springtime and you green... The East Meets the West is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media. Do not want. Do not want. <laughs>